All right, howdy, partner. Hey, Sir Richard. First, first time. We're the first two in here. <laughs> Oh, well, happening. yeah, I usually have to, uh, I usually have to like sing a song or just do a surrealist riff while I wait like 30 to 90 seconds for you to arrive. So thanks for, uh, sparing me of that. Yeah. When I get there first, I just, uh, I just leave it on silent. I just, well, you can't come in first because I create the room. No, I can come in first. Well, I can go live. But, really? Yeah, oh, okay. I've done it before. We've done it before. Remember, like when I wanted to leave, and you're like, "Oh, you can't." You have to create, you... No, I, I don't think it's about creating the room. But I thought I, I thought I actually had to launch the room again, and in, in, in that I, I would start so. it. No, a second ago it gave me an option to go live. Yeah, I think I think either one of us can. All right, who cares? Um, <laughs> so, uh, just as a disclaimer, the uh, counterintuitive name of this room is a. Uh, little jokey type response to the uh, a substack that Richard wrote recently that um, my girlfriend was badgering me to read because she was so enthralled by it. So congratulations <laughs> on that. Um, I, I did enjoy it. It was uh, much longer than I expected, but I didn't begrudge the length at all. It was, uh, it was a warranted read. So, um, yeah, what uh, – I mean, people should look it up, but I'm just sort of curious – what, how long in the making was it? I mean, had you been pondering over the subject for a yeah, while, yeah. or and just maybe just, just briefly summarize what it is? Yeah, most Substacks I, I'm thinking about for a while, sometimes for years, and then I just finally get around to writing something. Something's rusting in my head. You know, actually writing it just you know took a few days. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I you know my motivation was I think I'm just so sick of these stupid people on Twitter, like, you know, I, I <laughs> that's, you know, what we, that's what we're all motivated by primarily nowadays. I mean, you know, we criticize the media and we say, Oh, they got this wrong and they did that. But it's like, you know, the P I've just been watching. And I think it's got dumber since Elon Musk took over. I was sort of excited when Elon Musk took over. I thought like, Oh, we're going to have, you know, just less PC and less censorship. But it's like, it seems like there are some really, really dumb, like right wing people have been uh, emboldened. Um, and they're just, they're just dumb. I mean, like, like, you know, like their critiques of the media are not like fair, you know, it's like, oh, uh, you know, here's this headline of like the New York Times saying X. And then here's that headline of like New York, a different op-ed columnist, like six months later saying Y, like, oh, the media has lost credibility. (laughs) Nothing makes, you know, nothing makes Like they caught, they caught the hypocrisy. Yeah. I I have a, uh, I have a, um, a thread of like, uh, most people who are going to Davos and like harassing Klaus Schwab. Right. And, you know, the, it's all so dishonest. Like, I saw one, you know, these people have, like, hundreds of thousands of followers. They have more followers than, you know, major, like, New York Times journalists. And one of them was, like, you know, they had a 15-second a, a clip from uh, 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 the uh, Davos, and there was some Saudi guy was there. And the Saudi guy was just like, you know, there are going to be no cars. There's going to be this, that. I knew what he was talking about. He was obviously talking about Nome, you know, the city that they're building out in the desert. I know that's the plan, like no cars, like no And this person just took this clip and said the Saudis went to Davos to to take away your cars, right? Basically. And it's like, okay, Saudis like don't want people to use cars, like, you know, their entire economy is like oil, right? It makes no sense. It's just so stupid. <laughs> and and they're just like and they're they're just doing this like, you know, like nothing. And you know, for all like we complain about the New York Times and Washington Post, like these people with huge followings who criticize the media. They're a thousand times worse. I mean, that's the dumb people on Twitter. And then, like, if you go to conservative media, it's not as bad as, like, these, you know, the stupidest people on Twitter. 
but it's pretty bad. I mean, they're not giving you any information about the world. If you go to Breitbart's front page, it's just like Biden farted. Uh, you know, Biden's economy sucks. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's like, you know, it's like a Hannity like it's like a website of just like Hannity segments. I mean, there's nothing there. There's no information. Like when you're Hannity, <laughs> you avoid the partisan stuff and you avoid the really biased stuff. And you can learn things from the paper, right? You can go to the science section or you can go to the business section and you can learn, you know, read a great article. You can read about Myanmar's civil war. And, and just like the people who criticize me, they don't produce any knowledge, right? They're just, they're just grifters. <laughs> right. um, and so I got, you know, I got annoyed. I'm like, yeah, I've been like with you people, like criticizing the media for a while. But it's got to be tempered. And just to say, like, the media sucks and the media, you know, they're, they're terrible. And a lot of people just like, you know, they make their entire uh, they make their entire sort of public profile of just like trying to discredit the New York Times. It's just not healthy. And I, I, I don't think. It's, yeah. You know, so a few potential qualifiers here to raise. And I'm not going to do justice to the entire article because it's very long and worth reading. But. Just a sort of uh, smattering of thoughts here. And this first one relates to you saying what you did just then. I've always been of the mind that there actually is real value in media criticism. It's always been a significant component of what I do. I try to incorporate it into other forms of analysis that I might engage in. Uh, you can even incorporate it into reporting to some degree. I know you don't aren't really doing reporting per se, but it's not like reporting is this exotic concept that you can only do if like you're a certified journalist or whatever. It's a pretty straightforward just process of gathering information and using reason and uh, adherence to facts to check it out for accuracy and then report it in an intelligible, comprehensible way that sort of adds to collective understanding in some sense. Um, I always thought that that kind of report, that reporting can often be enhanced by a like, kind of underlying media critique, right? So, and there are even like historical examples of this. I.F. Stone, right, mm -hmm. um, who had his own, he, had, he was on Substack before there was a Substack. He actually had a self-funded uh, newsletter that people paid for and he printed and sent all over the country and he did some of his own reporting but a lot of it was media criticism because he had like sort of a unique skill and depth of knowledge where he could uh curate articles and clippings from uh, wide variety of sources that most people would have have had access to or like the time or means of finding on their own and criticize them and uh, or you know add additional context there was a lot of foreign policy stuff particularly vietnam for a span of time um, but that was sort of his bread and butter, or at least a big element of it, right? And even today, I mean, Glenn Greenwald, when he first started blogging, it was largely a media criticism blog. Um, and I guess I have to have somewhat revised my perspective on the value of media criticism only insofar as now because everybody's a media critic, everybody and their mother, and they have a platform – um, it seems to like dilute the value of media criticism. So I think maybe retroactively what I was putting some value on myself was just the handful of media critics that happened to be smart, right? That happened to be adding something that actually happened to have sort of like an analytical depth to what they're saying that actually is 
illuminating and does like cut through illogic or um, false consensus or, you know, uh, artificially constructed narratives. Um, Now, this isn't to say that I object to the common man having the ability to engage in media criticism. Anybody anybody should. And some of those common men, the critics will sort of like rise to the top of the heap and prove that they actually are doing something worthwhile. Uh, But I do agree that a lot of it is pretty much uh, worthless. And just a quick anecdote that sort of illustrates part of what I'm talking about here. And I mentioned this recently to somebody else. In uh, June, I think, or July of 2020, I was, uh, I went on this sort of two plus month nationwide sort of journalism trip to go to as many of the uh, George Floyd protest locations as I could, talk to as many people as I could from you know different backgrounds. Uh, I you probably recall that. I think that's why it might be a, probably around the time we first sort of uh, met. Um, and there was one time where I was in Chicago, right, in the blazing hot sun. I believe it was Juneteenth. <laughs> um, I was I went to two like big protests. I spent all day, you know, working. I mean, it's not the most backbreaking work. I grant, like I'm on an assembly line or digging ditches or anything, but you know, it's what I do for work. Okay. Um, and I, at one point, just chatted with a police officer and got the police officer's sort of observation about something was happening, and just tweeted out just a little uh, excerpt of the what the officer told me. I don't even remember what it was exactly. And I remember this guy, uh, Jeet here, <laughs> you know him. The, oh, um, oh yeah. I love Jeet. Jeet here, uh, Jeet, here, Jeet on, uh, here, Jeet on Twitter is the handle. Yeah. Jeet is, um, Ooh. Jeet is just everything about Jeet is just perfect. Go, go look up. Jeet. Well, I have a love hate relationship with him. Actually, we sort of, even though we are always, we've been fighting for like eight years, we have like, a. <laughs> I see. I sense that we have like some underlying like semi-ironic fondness for oh, each other, but I don't know. That's cute. I wish. Um, I wish you. I wish he. Uh, yeah, he he's actually. He's like. actually he been on me sometimes, but he he doesn't quote tweet me. He takes a picture, and I just wish Jeet would like you know engage directly so we can we can yeah, build that kind of relationship together. Yeah, and he's been nice to me in private because I um uh, I hadn't written for the Nation in a while, even though that's where I started in 2010. And I wanted to write something for them uh, in 2020, and he was like an editor there at that point, or a writer, and you know he helped like set up me to be able to write a piece because I didn't really know who to contact at that point, or hadn't really been following who was like you know the right person to go to. And anyway, so he's done stuff like that for me, on you know, which I appreciate. But so I tend to I tend to take in uh, good humor some of what he does. But there was one, this this one particular sort of uh, jab that he took at me just rubbed me the wrong way. Because I put out this little quote from uh, an officer. And again, bear in mind, I'm quoting and talking to all kinds of people. It's not like I'm just doing 24-7, you know, uh, conveyor belt dissemination of whatever I hear from cops to, like, promote a pro-cop narrative or something. Um, But, you know, it's a relevant part of the story if you're covering the protest movement, right? So I did that, and then I get, you know, a... um, a repost from Jeet where he's like basically accusing me of saying, accusing me of uh, being a hypocrite, right? Because, oh, most of the time I would never just uh, at face value, you know, take what cops are saying is gospel and spread it out. Like basically I'm betraying what I had pretended were my values of like skepticism toward government officials, which is a, pretty weighty thing to extrapolate from one little excerpt of a tweet when you have like 280 characters and I wanted to just put out an interesting quote, right? 
And so I just thought to myself, okay, this guy's sitting on his ass somewhere, I think Saskatchewan. <laughs> I'm in the beating sun in like at like three o'clock in the afternoon in Chicago in the middle of the dog days of summer. I've been like traveling around, you know, trying to like gain an understanding of like a major event that's happening in the country that requires some semblance of reporting to like develop yeah. a more robust understanding of. He's sitting on his ass. I think he's in Saskatchewan. I don't know. Some like Canadian province or part of Canada where like nothing ever happens. So he focuses 100% on the United States, which, okay, fair enough. Um, doesn't, it would never, he would never even have the notion of doing any kind of reporting on the issue. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be a reporter, right? And I, I go spend the time where I don't do like on the ground, you know, uh, reporting for, you know, whatever reason that much. Although I try to do some, in, over the course of what I am focused on at any given time. But, you know, I'm not saying that I'm like the most intrepid investigative reporter on the face of the earth, but I've done reporting over the years, right? And I was doing a lot of it at that particular period. And I just get this, like, sniping guy sniping at me out of nowhere who doesn't even – who's in the media, by the way, writing for a national publication and, like, never even uh, – had the faintest, you know, uh, idea to get off his ass for once and like maybe go talk to somebody and like get a quote or whatever. Yeah. And I'm just being, you know, raked over the coals because I tweeted out a quote and I was just like, I had that same sort of visceral reaction that you seem to be having. You seem to have that kind of prompted this piece and just like, you know what? Screw off. I mean, what do you do? Um, yeah. What are you contributing? And maybe it was a bit uh, that, like overwrought. And, uh, and yeah, sure. he may have done some reporting over years. I don't know, but it's but yeah. I mean, so when you get stuff like that constantly from like the peanut gallery, um, it does sort of engender this sort of uh, more uh, antagonistic reaction that's just sort of festers in you, and then at some point you kind of have to just let loose. Yeah, I mean, then there's entire uh, you know there's entire like media you know sites that are just nothing but this stuff, right? That don't contribute anything. There's, it's an entire business model. There's a lot of influencers. I mean, people, I think just maybe they assume like the mainstream media is so powerful and like, you know, all these other people on Twitter don't matter, but you know, there are really big, you know, liars out there who have hundreds of thousands, some cases, you know, millions of millions of followers. So a lot of, you know, a lot of these people are actually uh, influential. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and like, you know, and like if you just like compare, like the New York Times does not, you know, the New York Times isn't just isn't going to butcher a, you know, they probably have done it a few times in their history, but they're not going to be able to butcher a, a quote like that uh, they did on the the Saudi guy, right? Um, the Sam Harris, have you seen the Sam Harris uh, stuff that people have been dunking on him on, even though he's not on Twitter anymore? Um, that little clip where he's on some podcast or show where he's talking about um, like yeah. what would have been. Yeah, the case if like COVID were like a few yeah. degrees so he, worse or something. Yeah, and so like they've made it. Like, so he goes, uh, he goes, um, uh, you know, we, we, there was anti-vax, and he doesn't like anti-vax, and he's like, you know, we got, uh, you know, we wouldn't have had that if COVID killed children rather than uh, old people, uh, mostly. And you know, that's, uh, you know, he goes, so we got, you know, we got unlucky in that respect because you know it wasn't children, so like uh, anti-vax got taken away. Okay, okay, like so, like poorly, poorly worded. But then, like, people take it. Oh, you know, Sam Harris, so unfortunate that all these children didn't die. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's just making a point. Yeah, like, he's, he's like, Sam Harris, the, the point of what Sam Harris was saying is that he was yearning 
for more ha- children to have died during COVID. <laughs> that was basically like I agree with some of the. Crit- I mean, some of the stuff that Sam Harris has been banging on about for several years now, especially since Trump came on the scene, has been a bit tedious. I'm not. I'm not a regular consumer of what he does. I was for a little while. Like I did. Like he was. I, I read his book in like high school on the on religion and stuff. So I, I've been familiar with him for some time, and I actually do think he. he uh, like he actually also wrote a book on meditation that was sort of in, influential on me, and I like you know because of that and other stuff. I you know did meditation retreats and sort of improved my uh, emotional welfare to some degree. So I don't I don't have like just this reflexive uh, antipathy for Sam Harris, and um, and I could recognize that he's been annoying in certain respects. Maybe with regard to some COVID stuff, I don't really know. I don't follow. I'm not that interested in COVID debates at this point given other stuff that's going on. Um, but yeah, even if you don't like him or even if you think that like he's obnoxious and imperious uh, on his like vaccine related uh, crusade that he's been on like against like other members of the intellectual dark web or whatever to, it's not necessary to like watch that clip and conclude that his purpose in articulating what he articulated there was to long for the mass death of children. Like that, Clearly, was not the purpose of like the, you know, portion of the argument he was sketching out. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's not what he meant, right? And it's yeah, I mean, it's and you know, you just have to think like, wow, like when you see all this stuff, it's like the things we com- complain about, for, like the New York Times, the Washington Post. Oh, they didn't word this correctly. Oh, this source maybe is not reliable. It's just like pales in comparison to like. You know what big liars like normal people who critique the media. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so let me let me do a more um, thoroughgoing pushback just to see how you re- yeah. reply to this, because when I first started reading it, I thought to myself, okay, I know at some point he's got to do a qualifier where he says, you know, notwithstanding WMDs and RussiaGate, such and such and such, and then you know that was basically almost what you said verbatim. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Here's what I would want to ask you. Okay, WMDs, kind of a big deal. I mean, if the American media, which you're venerating as not being uh, deserving of some of the scorn that's heaped on it or not being a uh, valid target for this kind of all-encompassing consternation that tends to be overrepresented among conservatives um, because, you know, it's a, ba- it's a fundamentally sort of truth focused or truth-oriented institution, even if it commits failures at some time, uh, sometimes like part of the ethos is to correct those failures, whatever. That's sort of like you know, a part of what you're sort of, you're saying here. Well, I mean, WMDs, if like the, if the American media was the key vehicle through which, let's just call it a lie for the sake of argument, right? I know people sometimes quibble with that, maybe not anymore. But let's just say an outright fabrication around the causes belly for war was peddled you know crucially by way of this kind of meet, uh, broader like ecosystem that you're trying to um, rehabilitate to some extent isn't that like a pretty cataclysmic blemish on their record that can't really just kind of be um, tossed aside as like a, as maybe a niggling little um, in, inhibitor but it actually sort of should frame one's understanding of what the media is as sort of like an organism. Um, and likewise, Russiagate. I mean, 
it's sort of more complicated because it wasn't as though there was like one central lie akin to WMDs that you could point to as like the discrediting myth that was peddled. But, you know, the part of the reason why Russiagate was so insidious is because you would have this accumulation of frenzied, you know, supposed bombshell stories over and over again fed to New York Times, Washington Post in particular through leaks, namely from the intelligence apparatus or the FBI or through like Adam Schiff's staffers or what whatever. And then that would then be used to construct this incredibly sort of oppressive in the sense of just its uh, volume and um, saturation uh, narrative that really had some damaging effects that are far ranging. And I would argue, and I'm you know, working on something that's going to make this point in greater detail. I would argue are kind of central even to understanding what position the U S and the world is in now with regard to Ukraine and, you know, the risk of nuclear annihilation and so on. Um, and so even if we're just limiting our counterexamples to those two, right, those seem like such potentially cataclysmic failures. Okay. So and, and have brought such damage that I'm not, I'm not to, to, to toss them aside in sort of the slightly casual way you did seems maybe not particularly justified. Okay, so uh, two things. First before we get to, you know, the specifics of these, uh, you know, the argument I make is look, the you know, the New York Times has been around for, I don't know how long it's been around for, but I know at least 120 years or, or something. Um, you know, the media as a whole. So they're, they're going to have, you're going to have a long, I mean, imagine if you were blogging for, you know, 120 years, how many things you would get wrong. So, you know, the question, you can't just folk, you can't just look through history to get a judge of the media just by focusing on its biggest mistakes. Now, these are, you know, these are, these are big cases, granted. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that people, you know, I, yeah, I think there's, you know, in many ways they did a bad job. I think people under, uh, you know, they overestimate how much the media was at fault for these things. Um, because look, this is intelligence. This is governments claiming and agencies within governments claiming things. Get the truth is very hard. Now, the WMDs thing, you know, the the Bush administration, they convinced themselves. They themselves believed the IWMDs were there. Now, these were the people who had, you know, the access to the classified information. These were the people who were supposed to, you know, were the best position to know. So, like, if they thought, you know, if they were able to convince themselves of it, like, it's not like that surprising that, like, the media would too, right? I mean, they don't have... But they, they wouldn't have, have been able to order. generate a consensus for war in the populace if they couldn't have funneled the these fake certainties through the media to construct a narrative that well, then so, engendered the, the support. What's the media supposed to do? I mean, if the, if the intelligence, if like the, these background, these government officials are telling you about background, oh, it's sure Saddam has WMDs. Um, you know, like, I mean, I don't think Exercise that, I think that, discretion know. and exercise skepticism and don't just mindlessly uh, propagate what you're being fed by self-interested members of the national security apparatus because they're usually full of crap or, or often are full of crap often enough that you shouldn't be so sort of uh, beguiled by them that you sort of become their PR agents. It's pretty, yeah. you know, that's pretty straightforward to me. Or yeah, so I think, right. I'm just, yeah, I'm not saying they didn't make mistakes. I'm, I'm saying that, you know, it's, you could understand how this is. But it's not like just a mistake. It's not like they spelled somebody's on. name wrong. I mean, it's beyond mistake. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 you know, they put forward a, a false narrative that's, that's true. I mean, another thing we have to sort of remember about the time, which is funny, is that, like, a lot of the pressure, like, for war 
the most eager people for the war was not the New York Times. It was like the country music fads uh, canceling the, the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, I, mean, I there was a real, the people on that who today actually. Uh, uh, in 2021, people want to look it up. But like a lot of the people who today, like, and sometimes they're the exact same people. And there are a lot of the same voters who hate the media and will say, look back at WMDs, how they got that wrong. These were the Freedom Prize folks, right, who were going to who were gonna call you a traitor, yeah. you know, and who loved Told everyone to move to France. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, you know, the whole country sort of went insane. Like, I think the Bush administration is most to blame. And yeah, the New York Times did a did a bad job, too, um, after 9-11. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think it has to be put in sort of that context. Yeah. I mean, the Russiagate thing. Yeah. I mean, they Trump broke them. I mean, they, they're at the, you know, they, it made them a little bit crazy. Um, and yeah, uh, more than a little I, bit, I, but that's, I, I, you know, I, 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 but I, you know, and I don't, I don't actually think it's as consequential as WMDs. I mean, they did the Mueller report. I mean, the Mueller, you know, came back and they didn't have anything to charge him with. And yeah, it distorted our politics, uh, for a few years. But, well, it caused fewer more. direct deaths, but it had a similarly kind of, uh, sweeping long-term deleterious impact, which I, I argue you can trace to, for example, why there's such an impenetrable consensus right now for just nonstop pro-war, you know, policy in Ukraine because, you know, uh, Putin was public enemy number one, seen as installing the worst fascist menace that ever walked the earth, and Trump subverted our elections. Interesting, and it introduced this well, whole sort of lexicon of, like, de- you know, of, uh, uh, defending democracy against these interlopers that really, I think, broke brains on, a, on like, several levels just beyond, like, the core story of Russiagate, like it had like this kind of uh, multi-dimensional impact that was really damaging. Yeah. Although, I mean, I don't think like, you know, I don't think like everything that's called Russiagate that, you know, it's like uh, the Russiagate is like everything from Trump was Putin's spy to, you know, the, the Russians hacked the DNC, the DNC, right? I don't, that was never proven false. I, I don't know how you feel about, you think it's the good reason to believe that the Russians hacked the DNC and leaked it? Um, I think what I said when I read the Mueller reports section on that is that the preponderance of the evidence probably suggests that there was some Russian state affiliated entity that was probably responsible, but not proven by, by a uh, beyond a reasonable doubt by any stretch. Even still, a lot of the indictments that were made pursuant to that particular charge, and, and as well as the indictments that were brought by Mueller against like the internet research agency. So like the troll farms in St. Petersburg and stuff, they were crafted a way where they, they knew deliberately uh, they knew that they would never actually have to go to trial. And on the rare occasions where actually some of the Russians that were indicted sought proactively to defend themselves in court, the cases were dismissed. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the stuff that people kind of assume is proven even today with regard to Russiagate and even with regard to like the uh, maybe more like somewhat plausible stuff like the DNC hacking, still there's some open questions, yeah. I think, at least in my mind. But anyway, okay. that's, not, well, that's not really the most important part. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So, you I mean, you think even today, we you know, at least preponderance of the evidence. So it's, you know, a good chance at least that that was true. And then it's like not crazy to ask, like, okay, they wanted Trump to win. Like, it's not crazy to ask that, right? To, to report on, you know, to consider that a possibility. Um, you know, so yeah, I think some of the Mad Owl reporting was particularly bad. I didn't think the New York Times was that bad. They were like, according to, consider it a possibility, but to, okay, here, but here's why I have to sort of push back on that to some degree because 
one thing that I remember reporting on, I think this was in the summer of 2018. I forget what exactly prompted it because like every day or every, at least every week was this new bombshell Russiagate mania story that everybody had to like rush to Twitter to like give their take on. And, you know, I remember because I was seen as like a skeptic every time, you know, when it came out, like Don Jr. met at Trump Tower with uh, Natalia Villaskaya, this Russian lawyer. Now, now what, Tracy? I mean, you're, you've proven wrong, you idiot. And of course, you know, later, even Mueller later discredited that whole. So let's just take that one example. Okay. That's actually a good, decent point. I don't know how closely you were following this at the time, but in the summer, in like July, I believe of 2017, it came out that Don Jr. Um, uh, met with this Russian lawyer who claimed to have information on Hillary Clinton at Trump Tower. And that was, that caused like a, one of the many endless meltdowns from that period and was seen as, all but conclusive proof that the collusion theory was correct. Um, me and like, you know, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and Aaron Mate, we were all dead wrong and just and humiliated. And uh, it, that was just basically the consensus interpretation of that event. And even the, even the Mueller report, which is very flawed in a lot of ways, but even the Mueller report, to the extent that it investigated that incident, basically just undermined any sense that it was at all like um inculpating of donald don jr or proved anything resembling collusion right but there was a harm done in the sense that for like a month in january and july in uh, 2017 lots of people were just fervently convinced of a total falsehood that distorted their perceptions of american politics writ large on lots of different levels because the media was so obsessively promoting this story with that, that particular spin. I think that's a bad unto itself, not because I care that much about Don Jr. being wronged, or that's a component of it. I mean, if you're like besmirched wrongly by the media, I mean, you are wronged. Uh, but because, the, you know, the country was wrong. The popular understanding was wrong. I mean, if what we're talking about valuing here is like putting good information out into the universe, that did the opposite. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to just... Uh, you know, sweep it under the rug. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you that there are mistakes. There are narratives that are, you know, harmful and, and I don't wrong. Think that's, what I'm, that's the thing. I don't think it was a mistake. I don't think that the correct what do you think word for what happened there was a mistake. I think there was intentionality behind it, not in that they were intentionally promoting what they knew to be factual falsehoods, but that they were so committed to a particular... Narrative. They were biased, right? Right. Yeah. Or, or that, course, that, yeah. that 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 it was willfully done. It wasn't as though they committed an innocent mistake. Their intentional acts produced wrong wrongful effects. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's what I mean. My mistake. Someone can make a mistake because they're you know blinded by partisan rage. Um, yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, so you know, my piece is not about. Uh, you know the, the the media being uh you know like you know perfect uh just can't can't do any wrong and you know they they will they maintain the highest professional standards and got nothing. Worse. I say there are entire areas where they're they're just as bad as those people on Twitter. You know, following around Klaus Schwab. Uh, it, it's just the idea. The idea is basically, look, blind media hatred is bad, and take it yeah. as a whole. Like take Russiagate and WMDs. Okay, these two things that happened in the last twenty years. You know, put it with everything else in the world, right? Like, you know, we, we, me and you sit here and we talk about, you know, oh, the New York Times said this about the Ukraine war. The Washington Post said this. You know, look at the business right. coverage, the economy coverage. It's mostly good. It's mostly useful. It's mostly good source of information. And it's better than, you know, these people who criticize it and what else is out there. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you in that regard. Like even those Russiagate stories from 2017-18, like the worst offenders, like I could pull up, like one that comes to mind is there was this big bombshell report that was leaked to the New York Times, I want to say February or March of 2017, so pretty shortly after Trump came into office where they were fed these anonymous leaks about um, Russian contacts that people in Trump's orbit had made. Like there were, they tallied up the number of contacts and like what is a contact like they counted Jeff Sessions shaking Sergey Kislyak, uh-huh. the Russian ambassador's hand at the yeah. Republican convention as a contact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that. Even when I would read that piece, it's not as though my reaction would have been this entire article is just a lie, right? It's that, no, the presentation of this article and the method by which the information was obtained and disseminated is fundamentally deceitful and causing these wrongful impacts. But it would have been overly nihilistic and wrong unto itself to just dismiss it as a, quote, lie. And that's what a lot of conservatives who are of this bent tend to do. They have this, like, this blanket dismissal of the New York Times, even though, as you point out, like, you'll often catch them like citing the New York Times for, yeah. to like bolster their own critique. And yeah, I mean, what would you and I have done? I mean, what the hell would we would have done over this past year without the New York Times? I'm sorry, that's just the case with regard to Ukraine, right? And yeah. it was only because, only because of the New York Times that we know that the U.S. government alleged that basically the Ukraine special forces committed a terror car bombing against the daughter of Dugan, right? Or yeah. that they did these long-range drone strikes in April against the Russian strategic nuclear fleet um, and on and on and on stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, if you're just going to then denounce the entire institution as, you know, 100% irredeemable – and you have no alternative and you're just in the peanut gallery and like if you log on to Breitbart or like Steven Crowder or whatever, all you're getting is like nonstop making fun of college students with blue hair, which, you know, I can enjoy as much as everybody now and then. But like that's not going to really inform you much about important topics elsewhere in the world. Um, yeah. And, you know, you're uh, I think I agree with you that they've uh, lost the plot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, that's stuff like, you know, I hate, I came out of academia and I hate, I hate the wokes. I mean, I really hate their, you know, I hate their stuff. But it's like, it gets old after all. How, how many times could you read a story about a, a college student saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, licking an ice cream cone is white supremacy? Like, okay, like I've seen like a million <laughs> versions, a million versions of that story. And I'm like, okay, I, I get it. Like, you know, you think these people, they just, they just have a, I don't know. It's like maybe there's some people who just like eat the same kind of meal every day for like their whole lives. I think it's like some some are like those people. They just want to hear the exact same thing every day, you know, forever. Um, and you know, there's nothing. I consider nothing uh, valuable there. And you're you know you're absolutely right. And so, you know, you know the question is, that, you know, all of us who are thinking people who. Uh, read the media and we consume the media and we critique it because, you know, all smart people have to have some kind of critique of the media. I mean, they're not going to be perfect. We need to think about what's the, what's the correct language to use. Like, how should we talk about the press? You know, how, how should we uh, uh, engage with it? Like, I mean, I tell you, maybe you don't hang out with many, as many right wingers as, as I do, but it, it's vicious. I mean, it's like, they're the enemy. Some of them just have a blanket rule. Never talk to a journalist. Like they're just, you know, they're just your enemy. They hate you. Um, you know, it's just trying to, <laughs> yeah, exactly. to the New York times. They make that whole stick. And that's just unhealthy. And I but really then they'll have journalists. Then they'll have a handful of like, you know, uh, heterodox journalists or whatever term they use that they actually do like. Yeah, so they don't really believe their own rhetoric. If, if they're saying never talk to any journalist. 
Yeah, I mean sometimes, and, and sometimes they're you know sometimes they they don't they they don't know enough to know. Like, like would they say they ever talked to Barry Weiss? Yeah, no, of course there's you know it's not it's not Fox News, right? That is the that is the enemy. It's it's the it's the left wing. Uh, it's the left wing press, but you see it all the time. Like don't you know don't trust the media. There's no you know like they you know they they'll say here's WMDs. Okay, so never believe anything you know they they say again. Some people are are not reading the New York Times. They're just reading Twitter and they're seeing the dunks. Unlike right. the bad stuff that comes from New York Times or BuzzFeed um, or whatever. Uh, and, you know, these people have a very, very distorted view of the world. And so I tried to provide a corrective. Yeah. And one irony there is I'm almost positive that the New York Times would love to have, like, maybe a minority, but, you know, a healthy minority of staffers who were, you know, generally speaking, conservative, right of center, something. But were competent journalists and were smart and had analytical insights and like just had like a general acuity for the craft. Um, I think that I, I could very easily imagine like the management at the New York Times actively desiring that. And I mean, look, I mean, they, they, they have tried to recruit columnists over the years that are conservatives. I mean, Ross Douthat, I mean, he has, he knows how to, uh, keep it within certain limits. I'm not saying he does this arbitrarily or just to be an appeaser or anything. Um, but, you know, he does have, you know, full-fledged cons- conservative worldview, even if he's kind of more uh, congenial than some others. And, uh, you know, he's, they hired him, I think he was, he was ridiculously young. I think, young. I think he was like 29 or something when they hired him as the New York Times columnist and so there's like a and that's been like sort of a recurring tendency i mean i don't think they always hire the right people i mean david french please um but you know you know i, I know i've seen daniel mccarthy you know the former editor of the american conservative he has stuff you know smart guy you know competent guy yeah. not like yeah. some just crazy yeah, bomb thrower he always, he, he's, he's got stuff in the new york times yeah. now and then and so lots of others i mean so this idea that there's just this prohibition on any sort of featuring of conservative thought in the New York Times is just not true. But yeah, they're not going to have like some just wild rant uh, that's like not factually grounded <laughs> that would maybe like play to the conservative masses and like parts of that audience and convince them that the New York Times is hospitable to them. They have like higher standards. And I think they would probably genuinely desire for more conservatives to be able to meet those standards. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, a lot of people, they have, you know, they get confused because they think, oh, the New York Times doesn't pay attention to me or these liberals don't engage with me. And it's often because like, you know, you're not, you're not really contributing anything to the world, right? It's not because you're conservative, right? It's like a lot of people who are conservative will blame that for like, you know, people not taking them seriously or people not wanting uh, to deal with them. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, I looked up just for the article and I wrote about it. I looked up how many times I've been cited in the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, uh, like, t- you know, 10, 11 times between between them. And then a bunch of research that CSPI does, I mean, multiple times. And, you know, every single time, you know, it's been good. I mean, I, you know, it's been it's been fair representation. That I don't get that from people on Twitter, um, usually. Um, and so, yeah, I, and so, you know, this is, uh, you know, I, I've benefited from engaging with the media and I think, you know, other people should too. Uh, what's your experience? I mean, do they, do they have, they, like, does the Times, Washington Post, have you been mentioned? Um, How do you feel about it? I think as a whole, it might be a slightly more negative than you just because like there, if I'm going to be cited in the New York Times somewhere, 
it's not because like I have like research that I'm presenting to them, like from my think tank or however you know your um, deal could be best described. Uh-huh. Um, it's mostly because they are like um, glomming onto some, you know, probably Twitter generated controversy that I'm involved in. There are there have been exceptions when the Mueller report came out. Um, I got a lot of good press uh, from some unexpected sources, kind of noting me as like a early journalistic skeptic who had been vindicated. Now I didn't want to like toot my own horn too much and be pompous about it, but you know that was. True to some extent. So I was in a calm, uh, was sitting in a calm then that was uh, overwhelmingly positive. But uh, I think a lot of the messages would probably be uh, neutral to negative, um, with maybe a ha- uh, another couple positive ones that I'm not uh, recalling, at least in the New York Times and Washington Post. Um, because part of it is like this uh, with me more being perceived as a journalist, for better or worse, and you being more perceived as something else that's maybe media adjacent like i'm gonna probably be more uh, inclined to like engender wrath than you even if maybe they would ideologically object to you more yeah yeah are you um well so they write articles about your twitter drama like that that's um i'm not coming up with good examples right now uh like i remember dave weigel wrote something about me being a russiagate skeptic that was fair um uh, oh, oh, you know what? I had a good, I had a good one. Actually, I had an overwhelmingly good one. The Washington Post within the past year or so. Eric Wemple, the media critic guy, who actually you know does a good job these uh, most of the time, he wrote a whole column about how like I was the only one who like looked into the veracity of the uh, sexual assault slash harassment allegations against Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, that good. and was later like you know vindicated. Yeah, um, but there have been negative ones where I'm trying to remember now. There are negative ones where, like, I'm just like called like a right winger or something. I don't. I, I, I'm having a hard time remembering exactly. I have to look it up. But um, it's probably a similar type, uh, maybe slightly more than you. I don't know. Somewhere in the same range as the number of citations you've gotten. But there's like maybe more of an even distribution from negative to neutral to positive for me. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, so one quick thing I wanted to just ask you about on um, the uh, the article, and then we'll do the Ukraine update because this um, I'm interested in. And it's, it's not really that directly relevant to the overall thesis, but I'm sort of curious as it, uh, on it as sort of like a uh, tangent. But you say, um, reality is such that there simply aren't many conservatives doing work this good, and anti-wokeness, if anything, seems correlated with a lack of interest in the broader world. So that latter clause is what I'm interested in. Anti-wokeness, if anything, seems correlated with a lack of interest in the broader world. I have a similar observation as you, or, in, or I agree basically, with that observation, just in broad terms. Um, And that really hit home to me, especially vividly in the past year with the Ukraine war stuff, right? There was nobody in this, like, heterodox thinker crowd, or very few of them, I don't want to name names because I don't want to cause internet drama, but, like, the people who, like, for the the prior year or two... I had been kind of in affinity with because there was more of like an inward domestic kind of culture war focus to what was going on. Um, they basically were totally missing in action in terms of the kind of analysis or even just uh, disposition toward the 
U.S. war effort and the war overall that I would have found in keeping with like a genuinely heterodox view. I mean, I, w- I don't think people should aspire to be heterodox. That's arbitrary and could actually generally result in kind of just knee-jerk contrarianism. But like something that re- that that, re- that reflected these people having a broader outlook on life and society and the world that doesn't just always lead to them falling into this habit of like focusing on gender theory every single day. I mean, I'm not immune to focusing on gender theory. I actually think it's relevant in certain respects. And I've even, you know, I wrote one essay on it and every now and then I'll cover it or or talk about it when it's relevant. But like, if that's like the dominant overwhelmingly dominant force on your life, I feel like there's something (laughs) askew with your priorities that is just off. I saw a, uh, that's so funny. I saw a tweet today that was like a guy, we're told that we're fighting in Ukraine for feminism, but I forget how it ended, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just thinking like, who told us we were fighting in Ukraine for feminism? I don't remember a single person, you know, saying such a thing. I I see a little bit of gay stuff, you know, LGBT, you know, Russia's against LGBT, but I don't see, yeah, I don't don't know what they're talking, you know, what they're talking about. But it's like, yeah, they they (laughs) think about feminism and like, you know, racism and all that stuff. And so they think everything in the world is, has something to do with that. You're right. Some of the stuff is very petty i mean like you know like there's fighting over like what's in the public library i mean who goes to the public library when do you hear about public libraries except <laughs> people are arguing about i've gone to a lot of public there. libraries especially because i travel in the, in the uh, back when i had slightly less money and i was traveling a lot in the united states like in my car and yeah just uh you know staying random places i actually came to value the public library systems in various okay. locales more than maybe some so i have a Maybe a nostalgic uh, okay. affinity well, for public is, libraries, but I, but I get your point. <laughs> yeah, someone is trying to take away your trans toddler, you know, literature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they found it and they're, they're on to you. <laughs> the, the, uh, yeah, you're right. And it's like, it's so easy. And it's, I think it's, I don't know, it's like so easy to hate this stuff. It's like, it's so stupid. Like, oh, I don't know what a definition. Slow hanging fruit. Yeah, it's very, very low-hanging fruit. And it drives people crazy because smart, you know, supposedly smart institutions, respectable institutions, buy into it, right? And they sound crazy, right? And, they, and, and so it's like, oh, I'm NPR or I'm like the Kennedy Center or I'm like, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the, a cabinet official the, you know, the, in the Biden administration and I'm announcing my pronouns and I'm saying there's no definition of a woman and like we're a white supremacist nation. You know, it, it's a, it's a, it's it's like a way for elites to sort of distinguish themselves, and so people can see you know see through that, and they think it's crazy. But then you go and you think it's the most important thing. I mean, like you you think it must be like determining everything. So someone like showed like a picture of the U.S. military, and it's like you know women and and so forth, and like they show the Chinese military, and they're you know the women are smiling, and the American and the Chinese military they're looking mean and like marching with big guns. And they're like, oh man, we were so screwed. And it's like, yeah, it's like everything is sort of understood through that. Other things are complicated, right? Economics is complicated. Russia, Ukraine is complicated. Foreign policy is complicated. If you could just say, oh, I'm annoyed by people announcing their pronouns and then just like see everything through that. Yeah, it's much easier. But I guess just to drill down a bit, why do you think that correlation exists? (laughs) Because if we're going to call you anti-woke, you're an exception to that correlation right i mean i think you're anti-woke too michael probably not okay maybe i'm anti-woke i mean i don't i find the whole (laughs) uh i don't know construction of that dichotomy sort of tedious at this point but whatever i mean okay fine so you and i are both quote anti-woke and yet you know you know maybe people will object and say that i am i do have a stunted view of the world or something but we both at least think it's reasonable to call ourselves 
having interest in a much broader range of topics than just anti-woke stuff. Um, so, but yet, given your formulation here, we would be exceptions to this correlation you're positing. I'm just wondering if you like, just have sort of like a distilled explanation of like why that correlation even exists in the first place. Yeah, I mean, psychologists, I don't buy this much, but they'll say, you know, liberals are more open to experience. And so you're maybe, I mean, maybe there is something to that. Um, so open to experience, you would say, oh, someone has a new gender identity. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Also, I'm interested in like, you know, going to, a, you know, it's funny. One of the funniest studies I saw recently was like one of the best predictors of like how, uh, uh, how much a county voted for Trump was like the number of chain restaurants. Like people who voted for Trump really wanted like the same food over and over, right? They were like people, yeah. like it, it was really funny. Like, you know what would be another one, like, another interesting one to look at? I don't know if this is even possible, but it just popped into my head because the, I was thinking of like cosmopolitanism and its association with liberalism versus conservatism. How much did it predict the percentage of the vote for Trump in a given county based on um, what percentage of the population has passports? Oh, I think that would that would be yeah. It's so probably so closely related to like education. You're right, but if you if you had, I, I think that would be that would be an interesting one too. You might, you might Google, might Google Scholar it, and you know you might somebody might have done that already. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think you would find uh, that. I think you would find that you would find a connection there. I love the I love the chain restaurants thing because I don't know like. I went to McDonald's. I don't know. I would go to McDonald's today. Like, it's not I have against it. Like, if a Big Mac was in front of me and that's all I had, I'd eat it and I'd enjoy it. But it's like, you know, I'd rather, I'd much rather try something else, right? I, I ate a lot of Big Macs growing up and now, you know, I want, I want something else. I want something new generally. Um, and so maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's us. Maybe we're just more open, open to experience. You know, some people are intellectually lazy. They don't really want to think about politics too much. Like, I, I get a feeling of a lot of conservatives. Like, if there weren't, if there wasn't like gender theory and if there wasn't like, you know, talking about white supremacy, the stuff that just sort of drives them crazy and they find really offensive, like they wouldn't be into politics at all, right? Because it's like, oh, what am I, what am I going to do? Go think about the debt ceiling? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. boring. Like, you know, I, I want to... Entitlement reform. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that's part of that too. It draws a lot of people into politics who otherwise wouldn't be into politics. It's low openness to experience. It's intellectual laziness. Um, yeah, I think that's probably explains a lot of it. Yeah, I just had Burger King today because in Scotland, all the fast food restaurants have like hugely comprehensive vegan and vegetarian menus now. Like if you walk around and you see the adverts for Burger King, it's the plant-based, the new plant-based burger always. And they say, oh, meat options also available at the bottom in fine print. So I just wanted to try it because, you know, I... In the U.S., there's so they have more options now than they had in in the past in the U.S. But um, like McDonald's, McDonald's in the U.S. doesn't even have a standard veggie uh, type burger or like a non meat burger that you can get. And here in in, in Europe, as uh, at least in England, where I, or in, in Scotland that I've noticed, it's um, like a standard menu item, and it's actually you know it's good. I mean, they have made strides on it. It's not like the kind of pretty gross uh, veggie burger that you could get in the past. It's, you know, the technology has improved a lot. So anyway, I just wanted to try it. So I stuffed my fat face with Burger King. Um, I, I, I hate the plant-based meat always. The, although in Singapore now, it's like the first country where you can get a lab-grown chicken. So it's actually, it is chicken, but it's not, a, you know, it's never a chicken that's alive. They just grow it in like a, a tube. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not a vegetarian uh, myself. I, mean, I well, actually I mean, was the, a vegetarian the, the, the for a couple of years. With I mean, the other thing with the conservatives, with the mRNA vaccine, right? They're really freaked out because it's a new technology. So that's part of the anti-vax stuff too. And then the, mm. um, the other one, the eating bugs thing is really, is really funny. I think, you know, I, it's funny. Well, what is that about? I don't even. 
think I know what you're talking about. Like an occasional art, yeah. There's like an occasional article in like the Economist or something that's like, oh, eating bugs is good for climate change because like cows fart a lot, then like you know bugs like don't. So like you know uh, it's good for climate change. And they they turned it into you know they want you to eat bugs. They're going to force bugs down your throat. It's like you have to look for it to find it. Like I read you know a lot of newspapers and a lot of websites every day. I've never like organically come across a, uh, you know, pro eating bugs uh, piece. So you have to look for it. It's actually, that one's funny. I was telling somebody the other day, like, I, you know, I almost saw like being really like deathly afraid of bugs is like a feminine trait. Like, you know, like women, like see a spider, like, oh my God. Like, so it's not like the conservatives, like freaking out about bugs sort of strikes me like that. But, you know, it's supposed to be masculine. And that all yeah. sort of makes me laugh. That's a weird one. I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of like the conservative psychology or like the uh, quote reactionary mind. I don't know if you ever read that book by Corey Robin. It's pretty good. I haven't read it in a while, but it was, uh, had some good insights. Um, and yet I don't really grasp the whole, uh, bug eating phobia now that seems to have this like ideological content that I'm not fully yeah. following. Um, <laughs> they go in weird directions. I mean, that's, that's, it's funny. They cross, they cross shop stuff. It's just hilarious. Yeah. You know, you know, one week it's gas stoves the next week it's, uh, eating bugs and you know, there's a very, uh, a very cogent logical through line there that I'm sure exists, you know. Somewhere, if you dig deep. Anyway, let's uh, do a little bit of Ukraine because there's been some, as usual, significant uh, developments. Just before we started, like an hour or so, the, I don't know if you saw this, but it was announced that uh, tomorrow at this big uh, contact group meeting at Rammstein uh, base in Germany, the U.S. base in Germany, with all like the defense ministers from NATO and I think some maybe some non-NATO countries too, like South Korea or whatever. Um, the U.S. will, in fact, be sending 90 striker armored personnel carriers. Um, so I'm told by all the tank guys on the Internet that those must under no circumstances be classified as tanks. Otherwise, you're a total idiot and you know nothing about the military and you're another clueless uh, journalist who – just doesn't want to learn things as though I'm not like concept. I'm not objecting conceptually to this like rigid dogmatic distinction that they're holding on to. like between trying to claim that a certain item that meets all the criteria for a tank is a tank and another item that meets all like the generally understood criteria for a tank is not a tank because they're like super into military jargon and they are, I mean, I've been told that there's a big autistic following for this kind of stuff where they, you know, if you're uh, well-versed in saying what a particular form of equipment is, like you get a lot of guys on the internet um, who really uh, admire you. So I won't call it a tank, but it's an armored fighting vehicle um, that you know, has a turret affixed on the top and, you know, looks like a bad mama jamma. And those 90 of those are being sent to Ukraine tomorrow, uh, at, at, which will be announced tomorrow. And uh, I got enveloped in this whole tank con you know, nomenclatural dispute because I watched a clip of the UK defense secretary talking about the UK's tank deployment. So classically defined tanks, they are sending it from the UK. And part of the whole idea behind it is that there will be fleets of tanks, squadrons and stuff that will be multilateral, include the US and the US contribution, at least thus far will be these Bradley fighting vehicles, which I'm told is not a tank, 
because it's like a proper noun or something as though it's like eternally written in the stars that the Bradley fighting vehicle is not a tank, even though it has, you know, tracked wheels and has a, you know, large machine, you know, uh, auto cannon machine gun at the top of it and, you know, kind of resembles a tank, but let's not go down that road. Um, so those ta- those Bradley fighting vehicles that we were talked to, we talked about, you know, whenever that was the week last week or the week before, those are going to be performing functions in the tank squadron more competently and effectively than the tank actual tanks of a different series that the UK might have also sent. But the Ben Wallace, the UK Defense Secretary, said actually these. Bradley fighting vehicles from the United States are going to be better at performing the tank-related task than our tanks. Um, and so the point being, the, well, I got sort of mired in this because you'll often see it being strenuously denied that the U.S. is sending tanks. So therefore, like, there's a that kind of is in concert with a denial that like the escalation is as, is as extreme as like I'm making it out to be because it's not technically a tank. Um, so whatever. Okay, let's leave aside the technical definition. They're sending another giant, you know, military hardware, to, um, you know, uh, group of objects to Ukraine to intensify the war effort because, I don't know, it seems like you kind of get the sense that things are co- maybe coming to a head. I don't want to speculate, but like if you watch some of the, what's been going on in Davos uh, at this World Economic Forum – and you're not watching it because, like, you're trying to, I don't know, uh, accuse uh, Klaus Schwab <laughs> of pedophilia or something. Like, but they're actually talking about Ukraine a lot. And, like, so I watched this thing today where uh, the president of Poland, Duda, was on a panel with, like, Christian Friedland and Jens Stoltenberg and, uh, of course, my uh, favorite journalist, Fareed Zakaria, who's, like, their uh, anointed point person at Davos to, like, do these stupid interviews with people there. Um, and... It was sort of ominous because um, I put a I posted a clip of it earlier, but dude almost seems like he seems strangely subdued. He's like speaking in ominous tones, almost like it's like a pessimistic outlook about Ukraine. He's saying not enough is being done, even despite these new um, commitments of resources that are coming this week. He kind of alluded to how the West needs to quote mobilize even far and beyond what it's done thus far. It's not quite clear what he's talking about there. Uh, he's saying Russia's still very strong. And basically, you know, everything is going to come to a head within a few weeks or months when this anticipated counter, uh, new offensive by Russia is launched, according to him. And so, yeah, I mean, they're digging their, everybody's digging their heels in and, um, you know, entering another phase of uh, escalation, which, you know, Sorry if people are sick of that word once again. So but, did you see uh, the New York? Seems like it's empirically true. Did you see the New York Times article on the um, on the Crimea thing? Oh yeah, that's another one. Yeah, that was also what I was going to bring up with you. I talked about that on Greenwald's show uh, last night because it broke like just as I was logging on. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I've talked about this with you uh, for months. Yeah. Right. I mean, you yeah. read. It wasn't hard to read the tea leaves if you know what to look for. Um, yes. So and, it's. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not even the tea leaves anymore. I mean, I, uh, I you know, I was watching, um, I was listening to the New York Times. You, you ever listen to the Daily, the podcast? Um, not as a matter of course, if like there's something that comes up that's especially yeah. notable. I'll see so the last day or two, they were like talking about arming Ukraine and the latest stuff. And they were like, you know, the way they were talking about it was like the way me and you were talking about it. Like, oh, we notice a pattern. Like, you know, it's like they say they're not going to do it. Eureka. Like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so so they, they they so the narrative in like the New York Times is sort of becoming like okay, like what we and you have been saying for a while, 
um, that like everything is sort of inevitably going to get to the Ukrainians. And so this uh, this thing about the um, this thing about the uh, Crimea uh, and the tanks, you know, it it's a huge sort of Crimea understood. is a huge one. I mean, that's it has like... to be under- understood in that uh, in that context. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're getting closer and closer to uh, um I think we're getting closer and closer. For people who don't know, we should just say, I mean, the New York Times reported that the Biden administration is, quote, warming yeah. to the idea of, you know, sponsoring an offensive in Crimea, yeah. as have been, you know, pretty clear for some yeah. time now. But this is like maybe the most official yeah. confirmation. So, so the point is, this is, all, you know, the, the narrative is becoming like, oh, you know, the U.S. is all in, basically. You know, you can see it's like clearly sort of solidifying in that direction. Um, they're just going to help Ukraine win. And, they, and they, even the New York Times, the Daily, they were, like, justifying the American policy. They were making it seem like this was the policy. Of like, oh, if they announced it all, like, in the first day of the war, like, Putin might have retaliated. But they've done, like, the smart thing where they've just sort of, and maybe this is true, who knows. Um, they've, uh, they've just turned the dial up, you know, slightly all the time. And well, how the hell do they know that? How the hell is Michael they, Barbaro they right? or whoever yeah, was, they yeah. yeah, they they don't, of course. Uh, you know, but, like, whatever. Like, maybe that's, maybe that's what Biden thinks. Um, and... Yeah, so like, yeah, the entire narrative is becoming. Well, how about if they announced all of this in last February, there would have been more scrutiny of the policy. Yeah, that's true. That's probably true too. Um, and the oh, and the other interesting thing in that Crimea piece in the New York Times was like they, you know, were reassured because basically they think nuclear, the use of nuclear weapons is much less uh, likely, right? Because you know, Putin. Right. Like, they think events have disproven the idea that Putin would do, use nuclear weapons. I mean, because Putin is so, you know, like he, he annexes these regions and then he loses like territory, right? It is sort of, disc- it is discrediting. You can imagine. And then people say, you know, Crimea is different. And then other people say, you know, this guy, Dmitry Alperovich or whatever his name is, he had a tweet thread today. Like, oh, like if the Ukraine tries to take Crimea, it's just going to be incremental, just like everything else, right? There's, you, you know, like Russia is not responding with like, uh, esca- major escalation to like, uh, uh, you know, incremental steps. So it'll be like, you know, try and cut off the supply lines, doing this, doing that, if they're ever in the position uh, to do something like that. So, yeah, you know, it's becoming clearer that like, yeah, we were seeing we were seeing pretty clearly where, where this was going. And, yeah, we're going to a place where the U.S. is all in on trying to help Ukraine win. Yeah, um, I guess I don't really under I don't follow the logic. Or I guess I do follow it, but I don't necessarily accept it that in withdrawing from the next territories that has discredited Putin in the sense of discrediting the idea that he would retaliate to the extreme that is potentially uh, worried about. Right. Cause how do we, how do we not, we don't really have any reason to believe that he's given up on gaining control of those territories. Right. I mean, how do we know that this offense, you know, supposed spring offensive isn't real and part of the whole, concept behind it is to establish control of those annexed territories because he's consistently maintained that as the objective. Yeah. I mean, maybe, um, maybe, I mean, the idea about that, you know, the idea that I guess would be if he lost Crimea, he could always say, you know, I'm going to go back there. Right. So it's like he could lose quote unquote Russian territory, right. Things that he considers Russian territory and not use nukes. Well, we didn't know that before. Right. It could have been possible that, you know, when he announced those uh, annexations, he was like, basically like, that was like one of the times he was most explicit about threatening nuclear retaliation. And I thought at the time, the only reason you would do this 
because, you know, we could see that Kherson, you know, was in danger at the time. So I was thinking like, okay, he's not going to be so stupid. He's going to annex these territories. He's going to annex Kherson and then like lose it the next day. Right. Um, you know, he, so I think he's trying to send a signal that he's going to use nukes. That's what I thought. Like, or he's going to like escalate, but then like he just annexes it and then like loses it. Right. And so he just looks like a fool. And you can see how sort of this is, uh, you can see how this is, um, this can get the American government thinking, okay, like Crimea is not going to be, uh, any different. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't think, I mean, the counter argument there would that would be that it is much different in that it, uh, it occupies just a different place psychically in the mind of Putin and the Russian people. Um, I, I know that's a bit of like armchair psychoanalysis, but like all you, you, to come to that conclusion, you have to like just look at his public statements. I mean, he had pretty, a pretty, uh, I mean, look at what he did when there was the truck bombing on the Crimea bridge, right? He actually, that was the first, that was a huge escalation. That followed from that where it was the first time that Russia started, you know, systematically bombing the power infrastructure of yeah. Ukraine. Um, and that was just a bridge being blown up, right? That yeah. wasn't the uh, entire, like, historic Russian territory in his mind being seized that he, like, views as central to his legacy, right? Um, so, you know, that's kind of a, a bit of a superficial punditry take based on, like, not that great yeah. or complete of information, but it seems plausible. Yeah, nobody. Yeah, nobody knows. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is just. I mean, I, well, we, I think we're, we're getting a clear picture of what the sort of what the U.S. is thinking at yeah. that point. I think that's the logic. Okay, let's go to uh, callers. Uh, Isabel. Hello. Hello. Michael. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is uh, my girlfriend, and she asked me if she. Oh, is she really? Okay. So, yeah, she, she, I was gonna say she's talking to you like she's your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> just one word is all I. Need she said I could casually mention that it was her, and then she just does like a leading Michael to start off. But anyway, go ahead. Well, no, because I didn't want to pretend that I didn't know you. I thought it'd be dishonest, so I, would, mm. I just wanted you to prep. I know. I thought it'd be funny to like awkwardly <laughs> let you just uh, try to figure out how to proceed. Okay. No. Sorry. Okay. There isn't. I called in. It's because, as Michael said, I was like very enthralled with the why the media is honest and good. <laughs> um, well, she's uh, enthralled with Richard overall, just as a persona. <laughs> <laughs> she has she she's more she's a Hanania expert more so than me. Yes, good taste. <laughs> very flattered. <laughs> Always updating. Yeah. Um, so I wish I mostly agreed with, and I thought was uh, very necessary as well probably for your audience um mm -hmm. but i just wanted to uh maybe uh, challenge the uh I, slight moral sentimentalism only very briefly in the beginning um because i don't think that uh like people like people's moral universe is reflected in their moral in their um emotional reactions to you know uh in terms of like hating the media or even and in terms of like opposing bigotry, I think it's like mostly motivated by what they think is fun. And I don't necessarily uh -huh. even like, I think they want, um, I think people love reading like vice articles that's about like, uh, the girl's guide to, was it the girl's <laughs> guide to talking your dick? I think people love reading that and being furious and like disgusted by it. Cause it's like so much more fun than any other political topic but i don't think they're like genuinely i don't think that means that that's the center of their moral universe i 
think it uh, depends on, you know, who we're talking about. I think there's, yeah, a lot of people who consider themselves leftists. I, you know, I, I, you know, been around them in academia and I, you know, observe them online. No, I think there's general, genuine moral outrage on these, uh, on these wokeness issues. And I think the same for conservatives in the anti-wokeness direction and also um, in the, uh, uh, you know, about, you know, being having an oppositional stance to liberals and the media. So you're, I mean, you're right. It's, it's fun. I mean, for some people are just, you know, I don't know, this Steven Crowder guy, I mean, he just seems to be having a, having a ball. Um, <laughs> some people are just, just enjoying themselves. And some people I think are really emotionally, you know, invested. I, I think both are true. Well, the other point that she was making is that she sort of questions this idea that you can correlate one's emotional reaction to an event with how much they actually do prioritize the importance of that event or issue, maybe issue, not event. Like, so for instance, just because somebody in a boardroom gets really worked up about, you know, racial discrimination against their, you know, uh, friend at NPR or whatever, um, and they simultaneously claim that they view, like, world poverty to be their most important issue, but they don't get, like, as visibly emotional about it, that, like, you can't really make an extrapolation from that divergent emotional reaction as to what they do genuinely prioritize, because the emotional reaction itself is, like, a function of this irrational impulse that is yeah. separate from how they actually come to their conclusions about what is most important through whatever sort of reason thought process they're operating with. Yeah. But I, but I, but I think you do see sort of a close connection between the, uh, uh, the, um, emotional, the things they have emotional reactions to is sort of what they prioritize. So if, like you look at like the New York times, right. How, you know, they write a lot of articles about global poverty. They also write a lot of articles about, you know, racism against black people in America, right. Which is not as, uh, you know, probably a lot of them might, know objectively that like you know global poverty people living on one dollar a day are not like more dire straits and you know need more concern about their situation but no they're they're writing a hot you know i saw i saw like an article today on the front page of your times like pro- problematizing blondness like this black woman was like, <laughs> say how bad. you know this stuff is like this this stuff is there all the time and so like you know yeah i mean i think that you know maybe as isabel's saying maybe they're just you know sort of having fun, but I mean, there's a real, if you, if you see them, this is what they're having the most emotional reaction to and what it seems like they're prioritizing talking about the most. And, you know, I was just, you know, this whole uh, conversation praising the media, but I say, you know, the one thing they're great, they are crazy on race, gender, sexual orientation, this, this uh, woke stuff. Yeah. I think that's a good reason to say that this is, this is driving them. Well, my response to her when she raised that point earlier was that, yeah, I mean, you can't necessarily draw a direct connection between someone's emotional reaction to an issue and the amount of weight that they assign to that issue in terms of their like hierarchy of priorities. However, if you notice that somebody claims that their most important issue is X and yet they're having sputtering emotional meltdowns, you know, three times a week to issue Y, you know, that's you know, uh, notable information to take into account when you're making an assessment of what it is that they seem to prioritize. Sure. You know, it's right. like, you know, relevant data to take into account. But sure. However, most of the time, like when I've witnessed this kind of conservatism, I mean, obviously this is anecdotal, but when I've witnessed it kind of in the wild, I guess, um, like last year, working in an office, like primarily, you know, like very ordinary men in their thirties, the like CEO and directors, like I just left university and like, I actually knew loads of trans people and I guess was like very consumed with like 
being sick of all like the pronoun stuff but it was so weird to go into an office in London and it's like all of these men who I don't think like they'd ever even like met someone who was trans but like they were all so furious about like transgenderism and like the Me Too movement but like I don't think they'd ever been they'd ever encountered it but they loved to talk about it for hours and hours and it was actually really useful because like to make them like me I would just like dog whistle about different like <laughs> transgender <laughs> stories and then they'd be kind to me but I don't actually think that well now you've problematized yourself <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think like that would determine I mean they also run a business I don't think it even like crossed over into like for example how they would vote like they would probably care more about the economy they were running a business but like they just love to talk about trannies all the time <laughs> well trannies are i mean entertaining i mean you're you're right i don't know if these you know you, you say they wouldn't vote on it maybe maybe these are not the uh maybe these are not the people on you know the people who are driving political culture they're not right-wing twitter or the consumers of right-wing media maybe they're yeah. just you know they're just people they're, they're the people who find it funny and the people who actually you know make politics a big part of their lives you know they're having a different reaction they're disgusted and scared and frightened by the, the whole thing i mean you talk to conservatives i mean they they will genuinely it's so funny you know i have a friend who would always say uh you know, his thing was always like, no matter what I'd say about like conservatives or maybe if I defend liberals, oh, they want to make your son gay. Like that's what he would say. Like <laughs> this is like this is like something that's like you know this is like so fundamental to like how they see the world. Um, and it's like you know it's like even if you say like the media is honest, oh, they lie to me about you know men having periods or or whatever. You know, this is yeah, I, I think they take this stuff seriously, and I think it it really drives them. Yeah. All right. Well. Uh... Thank you very much, Isabel. This was uh, Thank you, Isabel. Two worlds, two worlds colliding. <laughs> uh, let's go to uh, Walnut. <laughs> Hi. Um, hey. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Okay, so um, I've been kind of super busy, so I skimmed through your article, so please feel free to correct me if I'm misrepresenting anything. Um, but I was looking at the article about, you know, the media is nice and all that shit, and <laughs> I had a few points regarding that which kind of struck me. First and foremost... I don't think you're in any way attempting to normalize for IQ, are you? Like, if you look at it effectively, mm. if you look at, say, a New York Times 135, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to compare them to the mouth breathers who well, say... Well, right why, 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 would I, why would, so I, normalize, that's why would I normalize for IQ, though? Like, you know, if, if the people who... If people are like, don't listen to the media, listen to this one guy who's much dumber, why would I say, oh, well, for okay, some that's fine. IQ, So my question okay. is, if you're not normalizing for IQ, then you are... For, if you're forced... If you're not normalizing for IQ then the heuristic is, you know, effect size. And if you're looking at effect size, then all of a sudden you need to normalize for readership. That is, you know, yes, the right wing is stupider, but fewer people read it. Therefore, it's less of a marginal impact. Would you agree on that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And that's that's why, like, it's I'm not, you know, you don't do just a one to, you know, one to one comparison. The New York Times making a mistake is more important than a random person making a mistake. Although I would do that, as I said earlier, I would not underestimate um, the reach of some of these media critics and some of these Internet personalities. Some of them have very, very, you know, very long reach. Um, kind of. Uh, another thing which was struck me kind of interestingly was, you know, you mentioned compared to what I'm kind of interested in. Suppose the alternative was composed entirely of people like, say, Luke Rosiak and Aaron Siberian. How would that change your perception? 
Oh, I, if 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 you could clone Aaron Sabarium and like make a New York Times out of him, um, yeah, I would say uh, I'd say criticize the New York Times and tell people to read Aaron Sabarium, you know, Times or whatever it'd be called. Yeah, no, because uh, okay, so basically, what is the standard? Because if I, you know, I do agree with you. I myself argued with people and said that the New York Times actually hires investigative journalists, and the only ones I know that write are like Luke Rosiak and Aaron Sabarium. Literally, that's it. So to that extent, I do agree with you, but I, I don't know if this came up in the conversation before I hopped on, but equally, uh, Walter Durante. Walter Durante literally lied America into a war. And unlike the prior case which you made, you know, in the case of Walter Durante, the people were against uh, getting into World War II before he started lying about the Soviet situation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we, we were you here for the um, WMD uh, Russiagate discussion? I was here for the very tail end of it, but I think, in the, you know, you made a point that during the WMD situation, the Hicks were fans of war, whereas if you look at, you know, their genetic forebears, the Germanics of America, the Germanics of America were not for intervention in World War II. Durante yeah. had to lie to get America into that war. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're unquestionably, you're unquestionably right. Um, a lot of the, um, you know, one of the points I made, you may or may not have heard, um, is that, you know, these foreign policy things are inherently very hard, and often they're following the lead of the government. I mean, that's what was the case in WMDs. I, you know, I think Bush and uh, his administration actually believed that uh, they had they had a WMDs, and you know, there's a tendency to uh, of the media to trust the government. Um, maybe they you know they had agenda in some cases. No, you're right. I mean, you're right. I mean, he, he, Michael's right too. I mean, the the uh, there are flaws, and there are huge flaws. Um, and you know, the question I want to address is sort of what should our attitudes towards the media as a whole, and you know, how we should approach it, and how should we constructively engage with it. Um, how should we think about sort of the alternatives and what are the consequences of discrediting it and when you critique it, how you critique it. I mean, these are the things I want to think about. Unquestionably, it makes mistakes and builds false narratives. And yeah, it's just, but it's just the question of what we do with that information. No, I agree. Uh, I mentioned Durante, you know, because he's the one explicit case we have where someone lied because of their ideology. And then, you know, so that's the one difference I can think of. But um, there was another point which struck me and that was... Um, xenophilia actually before i get to that um i think one of the reasons you're more you know warm at least somewhat tepid compared uh, for the new york times instead of just viewing them as a hostile force is i think there is a whole dimension over here of ethnic um warfare like ethnic and class conflict mm. and you know if you look at it as wasps versus poor americans a bit like charles murray or if you look at it as you know the um I don't want to, what is the immigrant group, you know, the Ellis Islanders, it makes a lot more sense because you are essentially a post-1965 guy, as am I, whereas if you look at a lot of the, you know, the ethnic lower Americans, they have a bit of an ethnic resentment going from at least the Civil War. So I wonder if that's one of the reasons you and I have a more warm approach to the New York Times than a lot of these people. Mm, I, you know, I don't, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to... You know, I know I see a lot of Hispanics who are very anti-woke online and media personalities, and I see a lot of Middle Eastern girls, and 
you know, you're right. You know, it's just like there's so many, you know, the lower class is actually, you know, old stock American. And so you're right. And the liberals have this sort of anti-racist thing, which. Uh, but it's not just, uh, but, but Richard, it's not just that they are old stock American. They are old, you know, if you look, um, I'm going to go, no, I'm not regime, but I can tell you that, you know, there is an ethnic difference between the lower Americans and the Americans who are from, you know. The, yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, well, the lower Americans are the old countries, you know. Yeah, I mean, the lower right. Americans, if, you're, if what you're getting at is what I think you might be getting at, is that these uh, sort of lower class Americans, they cheered moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, and they love the guy who, who did that. Is that, is that, does that. Does that sort of map on to this sort of ethnic resentment thing? I mean, there is a part, I mean, there is obviously, I think, so there are two conflicts at play, I think, in terms of class warfare over here. The first is, you know, very much uh, that the New York Times types do not like the, um, the you know, Anglo-Germanic immigrants from the not so nice parts of England and Europe. That definitely plays a factor, I think. But equally, there is a parallel one, right? There is a whole Likud versus, you know, um, what's his name? Ehud Barak formulation, you know what I'm talking about? Where there was a, you know, there is like within different uh, ethno-religious groups, there are different class conflicts going on simultaneously. And I think there is a projection onto that basis which is happening in a lot of the antagonism we see, and you and I are sort of spot, at least partly exempt to some of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just say about my, myself, I think five or six years ago, I was with the populace and just hating the media and being very nihilistic. So, you know, my ethnicity didn't change uh, during that time period. So, you know, me personally, no, I, I tend to think that personal identity doesn't have much to do with my views on these things. And, uh, let me clarify. I didn't, I never meant from your side, I meant from the side of the writers. Because, you know, you, like you will see, if you read the New York Times, very directed attempts to, say, attack any form of Hindu identity or Orthodox Jews. And that is, in, you know, it, it, there's always like monthly threads on that shit. But yeah. um, more interestingly, I think your point about food is actually really interesting about, you know, chain restaurants. Yeah. Because if you think of it, the willingness to try new food does sample for openness. Yeah. And I do wonder... Um, you know, these people have changed restaurants. A very good way to capture this would be to ask how many, what percentage of these people actually know what, you know, ethnic European food is meant to be like. And my bet will be that these people go to chain restaurants, don't even know European food. They just um, are completely deracinated, you know, whole <laughs> Americans. And that's what you're sampling for. Because, like, I have met so many Americans who do not know how to make their own, you know, eth- like, I mean, like, Germanic or English food or whatever, and just eat trash. And, you know, I think there's a very interesting sampling over here. <laughs> All right, Walnut, we'll, uh, we'll have to leave it there, I think. So, thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank oh, you. Was, uh... last comment, very quickly. Okay, very I mean, quickly. The, the issues I care, I think you're completely right on one thing, because the, uh, the two issues I really care for the most are uh, crime and, you know, meritocracy. And I think both of those require an honest conversation, the sort of which um, requires you to be, say, in favor of Professor Watson. And I don't think any conservatives have ever stood up for Dr. Watson, so that's not going to change. Okay, thank you, Walnut. Let's go to uh, Andrew, makes his triumphant return. Andrew, number one. Hello again. I wanted to talk about Ukraine. I'm sure you'll be yep. surprised. But first, because uh, I read the article that Richard wrote, and uh, you know, I saw it, and it immediately triggered my cognitive dissonance as I saw other commenters say that's the exact reaction I had. So I had to read it. 
and I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I had a hard time disagreeing with it. You know. Thank you. That's and, what I go for. You know, a lot of people. I get a lot of that. So thank you. That's I'm a good. satisfying response, actually. Like I, I couldn't help but agree with it. Like despite. I'm, just, I'm, like. a, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big fan it. of my, yeah, I, I just, yeah. if I could toot my own horn a little bit, I like my tweet, how I linked to the post, I said, you know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give you my most controversial take yet, you know, right. I'm going to be, you know, get ready to unfollow, oh, journalists are good and you should respect and honor and listen. <laughs> <laughs> that really triggered people, that was fun. Yeah, a little, a little clickbait, a little clickbait, that was rage bait right there, for sure. But uh, it worked. And anyway, having processed the article, I, I did have a hard time finding a place to really grapple with the disagreement. Though I don't think my view was shifted. I do think you pointed out some uh, underappreciated truths that uh, go ignored. And basically, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, from what I'm getting, this, this is basically an argument to shift the focus on how to criticize media properly and uh, if it needs to be replaced or reformed, uh, how to do that. And so I just wondered what you thought some of the most promising avenues and, uh, you know, ways to do that would be uh, replacing or reforming the media where, where that might start. Is it going to be taking place inside the corporate world? Is it going to come from outside of it and more independent avenues? Yeah. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think that, you know, like, you know, there's a, f a few things you can you could do, right? I mean, you can, you know, if you're, if you're not a, you know, you know sort of a, a uh, um, you know, a center liberal, you know, center leftist who is, you know, sort of comfortable with whatever the New York Times op-ed page says. If you know you're more conservative, or even if you're more left-wing on issues, um, you know, you you engage with them. Like I have good relationships with journalists. I mean, look at my Twitter feed. My Twitter feed is not, you know, is not like, you know, uh, respecting their pieties, right? It's I'm not sitting there saying, oh, you know, you know, people of color, you know, honor uh, the life of George Floyd. That's not my Twitter account yet. You know, they talk to me, and I've had an op-ed in the New York Times. I've talked to them about doing you know, potentially other stuff. And, you know, they've, they've mentioned my articles a lot. So, yeah, I mean, me, my ideas getting out there and like, you know, makes the New York Times, Washington Post incrementally better. Um, I think other people should do more of that, engaging with these people, just, you know, engaging with them. Honestly, you don't have to be like, you don't have to like kiss up or say, you know, um, you know, or have to like, you don't even have to, you know, sort of uh, uh, pray to their gods. I mean, you really don't. I do not do that. I mean, you can you can look at you can look at my feet. You know my you know my my reputation. I, I don't do that. But you have to have some like fidelity to facts. That probably yes helps. yes have fidelity to facts. Yes, if you are just a, yeah exactly. I, that's that's like they that, that's it's like good that they don't engage with people who like don't care about facts, right? I mean that's like mm -hmm. that's like a, a positive uh, aspect of the media. Um, and you know like if people want to do their own projects, like you know Aaron Sabarian. Uh, Walnut, I think, mentioned him early, uh, earlier. Uh, he's, you know, he's a friend of mine. He does, he does good work. I mean, people, you know, Barry Weiss is starting a uh, newsletter. You know, I haven't read that much of it. Um, not a newsletter. I think she's starting a news site. Um, you know, people want to start uh, newspapers, magazines. You know, there's the the barrier to entry here is not is not huge. I've you know thought about eventually. I agree. Maybe. I've, I've thought about maybe eventually uh, stepping into the space at, at some point and trying to do something. But yeah, I mean, I would just, you know, encourage people to do that, engage with the media, try to make it better. And, you know, if you can, if you're inclined to start something new. Yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. And you're right about the barrier of entry being very low, especially in this digital era. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a, a younger audience that is not, well, a lot there's also, I mean, just to add something quickly, there's also a lot, I mean, sometimes I think people in the media, maybe even on occasion myself, have this impression that, like, the market is tapped out, 
or, um, you know, the why bother at this point? Because anybody who's going to be able to make something of it has already gotten to where they are. And like, you know, you kind of miss the boat. I I don't I think that's pretty much almost never true, especially now with, you know, the Internet providing endless wells of potential audience that maybe you wouldn't even have thought of were possible before. Like, I mean, I don't know if anybody followed this, but uh, Stephen Crowder, he came out uh, earlier this week with, like, this big, you know, dramatic denunciation of, like, some unnamed conservative media company that he had some dispute with. And um, people were speculating that it was the the Daily Wire because it seemed like the only possible company that it could have been. And he was saying that he was comparing, like, the Daily Wire's business practices to indentured servitude or even i think he said slavery at one point because of like how they want to control your uh, intellectual property and social media and you know uh basically fine you if you get banned from youtube or apple podcast because that reduces your revenue anyway the point is it came out today i just saw this a uh, little, little while ago that steven crowder was off offered um 50 million dollars yeah. in that contract Amazing. over four yeah. years which is like, okay, I know Steven Crowder is like, he's a pretty popular, I guess, you know, conservative media personality. But like, if you get, you know, one one hundredth of that, um, you're probably going to be, you know, decently uh, <laughs> equipped. And, uh, you know, people are, you know, pretty, making decent amount. People can, lots of people can maintain a livelihood now based on a, even if it's a smaller audience, a consistent audience, and it's not like you have to like break through and become the number one most popular guy on YouTube or whatever to make something that's sustainable. So it's just something to uh, to bear in mind. Because I mean, fifty thousand, fifty million dollars over four years for Stephen Crowder. I mean, yeah, it's there's definitely audiences that are still available to be tapped into, especially younger audiences. The news, the news media, the modern news media sucks at engaging the younger audiences. I think I mean, that's yeah. beyond. It's real news media, not clickbait, you know, BuzzFeed bullshit. Um, uh, you know, and I, a lot of it's because they don't read. They're illiterate, yeah. and some of them are illiterate. Maybe a lot of them, but they do. Well, you know, CNN them. will try to, videos, like, you know, make a TikTok or something, and that's their outreach. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but, like, even you, Michael, you've, like, spoken to, like, Destiny. You've been on Twitch and things like that. That, you know, that a serious amount of people watch yeah. that. You don't have to be on Twitch as a Twitch personality. You don't have to be a Twitch kid. You just have to be, you know, able to walk between these realms, right? And carry yeah. people with you. I I, I don't I, even really seek any of that stuff out. I mean, I went on Destiny because, like, somebody invited me to go on, you know? So. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. You have to at least be yeah. open to it and not, like, think that it's beneath you or, like, intentionally not understand what it is or what it's. Right, they're they're there, they're there. It's just you know CNN's never going to get to them, but yeah. Anyway, thanks for your thoughts on that, Richard. That's very interesting. It's a good article. I shared it around as much as I could. Um, for sure, because I am banned on Twitter. Uh, anyway, the uh, the Ukraine stuff I wanted to talk about. Now I'm going to disagree with you more strongly because I think you believe that. If I let me just ask you because I don't want to put words in your mouth. Do you see this next or this current shipment of arms with the tanks and? Whatnot uh, as a sign of a strength or uh, this to, to, to me or Richard. <laughs> oh well, it's to Richard okay. or both of you. But Richard, I believe, is more often. I would. I don't know what your position is, Michael, but I know that it sounds to me that Richard is more optimistic than you about Ukraine's pers- uh, 
chances. I don't and, think uh, Michael has any. Position, I don't think Michael's maybe. making any predictions about Ukraine's chances, right? No, I mean, I, I don't know. I, if I have a position on that, it's like trying to steadfastly uh, maintain some like epistemic humility on it that lots of people don't have any care to try to maintain. Yeah, yeah I have no, I have no idea what I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know, if, you know, Ukraine or. Russia. I mean, I would be inclined to think that Ukraine is getting better technology, while Russia is not getting any better technology. There, uh, Ukraine is probably uh, in a better position. But some people say about Ukraine, Ukraine has manpower issues, and Russia now has manpower. Yeah, I have, I have no clue. I mean, where it, it's a problem to even know who to trust or where to start, right? With, yeah, with I mean, manpower, Ukraine manpower. Well, you know, one of the yeah, paradoxes I've noted in this is that when these deployments are announced of new weaponry, right? So we have this latest round coming up tomorrow, and which is, you know, announced today, um, of like a new caliber of weaponry. Now it's these like striker armored vehicles from the U.S., and it's tanks from the U.K., and these, uh, mm-hmm. you know, light tanks or tank variations from France and whatever. That's always paired with this insistence that Ukraine is winning, right? Or that the reason why Ukraine is now getting these weapons is because they're winning, right? Or because Ukraine's fortunes are good. Well, whereas you could make, you could easily interpret it if you weren't like all the invested reflexively in that particular way of looking at things, that if they need this constant supply of ever more weaponry, and even when they get the weaponry, they start immediately agitating for even more higher grade weaponry, and that's the consistent pattern, and it never changes. Right. Then maybe that need that they're is expressing incessantly to have their war effort subsidized to the hilt is not necessarily reflective of a good potential outcome on their part, but like desperation. Or something along those lines. All of I don't know that that's necessarily true, a true interpretation or the most accurate one, but it's a potentially it's plausible one. And you, yeah, it's conceivable, and you never see that really even uh, entertained well, as something to kind of at least consider. No, and this last time, it's not even because they're winning necessarily. It's because of this Ukraine apartment thing with the missile, and now there's all these different. Uh, Articles being run about how that it's a critical turning point for the Biden administration. It's like exactly every why week has a been a critical turning, turning point. point. That, that that's exactly. always so, claimed that it's a critical turning point, and I, this is going to set yeah. the course for the entire war. I mean, they use that cliche all the time. Well, and the thing is, the thing it's like when people say that every election is the most important election in history. Right, it's eternal, and it's obviously it's motivated by not the truth, but you know, there's self interested. Uh, parties here that are telling these narratives right and you can't you got to keep that in mind but the things that they've been saying that they won't send before and when i say they i mean like the british for example said that they weren't going to send their tanks because it wouldn't be essentially they said it wouldn't be appropriate it would be too difficult logistically and it wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for the battlefield or whatever and now it's suddenly appropriate and logistical. and then it would be too escalatory are they just yeah, well, even if you want to say that they've decided it's escalatorily, uh, forget the escalation because, you know, we need to do this, right? Because we're right. so moral and we love democracy, right? But or now, what we uh, thought was escalatory before has now proven not to be escalatory based sure. on, you know, Putin's response to their... Because he's weak. But suddenly these things that weren't going to work logistically and aren't appropriate on the battlefield are appropriate. and But they're so appropriate that we're only sending 28 of them at once. 28. 
Dwight, every time I talk yeah. to him, they bring up the list. Well, I mean, but how many? I mean, he asked for hundreds. If he they wanted, I mean, it, let's say that they were zealously committed to sending the absolute maximum number that they could send right now. Right. How many could they send? Like, I'm not sure if know. that's like a strategic sort of hedge on their part. I mean, I think that might play into it to some extent. Or if it's like a genuine, you know, um, manufacturing base issue or supply chain issue. I mean, those things take a long time to produce. And although US, right. the U.S. is mobilizing its defense industrial base pretty rapidly, I mean, unless you're going to declare like a total countrywide war mobilization, yes. it's not like you That's... can get that done particularly no. quickly. I mean, look at World War II. The U.S. took years to really get, even when it had entered the war, it wasn't at a point of mobilization. I mean, there was huge criticism contemporaneously about how the war mobilization industrial effort was um, lackluster uh, for until like really 42 or maybe even 43. That's sort of when it reached the kind of peak that provided enough armaments that people thought that that was like satisfactory in proportion to like the requirements of. So, so either this is, you know, um, when I'm when I'm talking about these these tanks and stuff, and and the, the the matter of them being appropriate or not changing, it's also the fact that, um, I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking on what I was just about to say. <laughs> these tanks are not appropriate. I was going, I was so missed, uh, you know, transfixed by your. Talk here, well, don't but, get, oh, don't get too transfixed by me. That's a number of them. Yeah, I can't help it. Why do you think I'm here every week? Yeah, the number. Like, uh, what what's the number that they could reach it's, it's if they triple. were just genuinely maximizing how many they could send right now? It's a, the thing they're doing right now is sending in a trickle of what the Ukrainians have asked for for their offensive. Mm-hmm. So we're giving them a steady trickle, which if they deploy it, is going to be destroyed in a steady trickle and they don't ever get a chance to build it up for an offensive or they're just going to use it outright in a blitzkrieg and it doesn't make sense to me why if if this is an all-out attempt because we're taking the initiative right now because ukraine is winning and we you know this is the critical turning point and here come the oh here come the tanks you've been asking for and it's only 28 of them but somehow now what we're going to wait another six months for the next 28 another six months for the next 28 and then the next six months we'll get 40 I mean, what what's going to happen here exactly? And what are these things going to be used for? An offensive? So what, I, what I'm going to make a bit of a wager, not a wager, but a prediction here is that if this equipment is not used in successful offensives to seriously drive Russia out of strategic positions in Ukraine, and I mean like out to at least kicking them out to Crimea, not necessarily taking Crimea, but like splitting their forces or doing something extremely significant, it's probably going to just be either amassed and destroyed over time or they're using it to defend, which means that they're not winning. Because if they're winning, why aren't they going on the offensive and kicking the Russians out? Are they just taking their time and enjoying the Russian artillery? Well, I mean, if you listen to what the Polish president was saying today and and others at Davos, I mean, they are kind of – they don't say this explicitly because maybe they don't want to be totally forthright, but – you do get the strong impression that they're at least thinking of it in large part in defensive terms because they're saying we'll have to gear up for this coming Russian offensive. So maybe they are thinking it in that vein, but they have to also like maintain this floating possibility in the near future of a Ukraine counteroffensive, whether it's Crimea or someplace else, to kind of uh, you know kind of keep up the as like a propaganda tactic to 
yes. keep up morale and people along. you know get people you know keep people engaged. I agree, and that's what it looks like to me. Does not look like a serious effort at oh, taking the momentum and winning. It looks like a desperation move to string people along and use equipment that they just said was not appropriate and was not logistically feasible to at least say they're giving it and hey, see how it goes. If it gets blown up, whatever, we'll send more anyway. Yeah. You know, that, that's what it looks like to me. But anyway, I've taken much of your time up, so yeah. thank you. All right, thanks, Andrew. Let's go to... Uh, and Michael, I've got a, I think I've got, a, I've got a sick kid here, so I think I've got a call it wraps for the night. Oh, so. okay. Apologies to the remaining callers. If you, um, I, I would be disappointed as well if I was forced to only talk to me. All right. <laughs> Good night. Uh. <laughs> I'll try to answer on Richard's behalf if I can channel him. Well, I don't know. You might have a tough time defending that bit, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, he, he I, checks I, out I, after I, about ninety minutes. What are you gonna do? Uh, I had uh, had hadn't had a chance to read that article, so I'm just reacting mm -hmm. to some of the conversation. But uh, right. uh, but on the media, it just uh, uh, and I think I've talked about this before, but it's just so striking to me that you have this, uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, group meld <laughs> uh, that I think, you know, is extraordinarily consistent. And I'm, I'm 70. So I go back a ways and everything. And I can't remember it being like that at that time. Right. You try to figure out, uh, uh, you know, why in a cold war period, it would be uh, somewhat more open. I mean, there was always contrarian positions, you know, mm. there, who were, who were taken seriously. And we're given media time. Uh, uh, you know, you, the, I just don't see now. I and mean, it's just astonishing. But, but my experience is primarily with local media. So I mm. go back thinking of having four major newspapers in Chicago. Right. Uh, now, but what I remember about them is that the, uh, the people that work there, the, uh, the court, uh, journalists, <laughs> were uh, reporters at the time they were mm -hmm. very work they were working class yeah it wasn't an elite profession in that sense you know uh i mean and, and they so they were tied to the community they you know they were uh they didn't get bullshitted easily <laughs> if you will you know? right. and, I, and i look at local media even the uh and i'm sure this is true in every city uh you know and you've got these lo local collectives doing news and these kinds of startups and everything and uh uh, but they're just, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're, 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 I guess they're in a competitive arena and everything, but ideologically, I mean, they could be subsidiaries of PBS or whatever. I mean, it's all the, yeah. it's all the same stuff. And what's worse, they're not connected. They do not have a feel right. for communities. You know, I mean, they, they project uh, a narrative. It seems like everybody wants to be in the media because they want to project uh, or be an activist or whatever, but... Uh, well, the, you know, the, the, the decline of Ukraine yeah. real quick. <laughs> well, let me, let me just respond to your media point real sure. quick and then you can go to Ukraine. Yeah, I think the decline of local media is sort of a separate phenomenon than the one that Richard was talking about. Although I guess maybe you could right. argue that it's related in certain respects. But it's a huge development in just American life how much local media – whether it be newspapers or like all weeklies and stuff that just been vanquished, liquidated. I mean, all, all weeklies, right? Which sure. you know, most major cities used to have, uh, even they may have had a couple of them, 
um, you know, that those they were pretty connected to the culture of the place, and those are gone. I know there are certain equivalents that are on online, but I don't know really if like the um, centrality of the alt weekly has really been replicated in terms of the effect that it could have on a certain sort of cultural milieu in a particular city. Um, and for the more mainstream organs, yeah, it's even worse. I mean, like, uh, whenever I try to look up something on local news, it's just this, you know, very down the line, like corporatized, you know, sterilized, uninteresting little rendition of what the latest news of the day is. It doesn't really have a local flavor or color anymore. I mean, maybe I'm generalizing and maybe I'm missing stuff. I know, like, every now and then you'll see, like, a, re- a report about how this, you know, in Raleigh, North Carolina, they have a new newsletter and it's doing well. I mean, I think there's a potential business model out there to, like, hopefully create some sort of um, rejuvenation of the local news industry. But, yeah, at its low point, which was probably, like, around, I don't know, 10, 5, 10 years ago when, like, the, in the 2010s, the industry really cratered com- completely and bottomed out. Um, that's going to take a long time to recover from. And it's also bad in the sense that, you know, I think there were problems with the old style system of how like a young journalist could enter the field where, you know, just assume that you're going to try to work, work for the local newspaper as like an apprentice style um, laborer. And, you know, that draws in some working class people. And then like if you work your way up, maybe you'll be an editor at the publication or maybe you'll go to D.C. work for the Washington Post. I don't think that system was necessarily great in every respect and it kind of produced its own conformity but in terms of the local connection local flavor and like the um, heterodoxy of views that that produces and the multiplicity of perspectives that that kind of showcases having gotten rid of all that and then everything gets subsumed into this like natural national media blob um yes we do kind of miss out on like what it would have been would have been the case, you know, in the seventies or something, where like you know the you know the liberal paper in Cincinnati had a different take on things than the liberal paper in you know um, L.A. and that kind of right. played out in a certain way, you know, in the national media discussion. Now maybe I'm kind of overly glamorizing it. I don't. Again, I think there were big flaws with it, and there are even some aspects to like the media ecosystem today that are better, just in the op- in terms of like the range of opportunities available. How you can have like a relatively small audience but still be sustainable, and you're not. It's less necessary to be beholden to like a media proprietor or like an overbearing editor now, and that has some upsides for sure. Uh, but you know there are trade offs, and one of the trade offs I think is really the loss of that local flavor and the kind of. Just again, like subsumation of everything into this just na- into this national media ethos that hasn't makes no difference whether you're in Cincinnati or LA, right? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, well, uh, part of the problem by getting that homogenized worldview is that you, you get people who start to repeat or believe absolute wacky things and i'm going to use this with ukraine yeah i mean you don't need to be a general uh you know or military expert to you know kind of watch what's going on here okay it's not that complicated if you get a a sense of history and you can count you know i mean it's a small country that's losing millions of people uh, and by the way, if you're a general or quote military expert, you're, you're probably more likely to have a distorted picture because, like, you're 
in this web of jargon and like military doctrine that like is that becomes this weird dogma that you like interpret everything. Yeah, through. That forces you to uh, draw distinctions between various forms of uh, military vehicle <laughs> to lord it over someone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if, the, if they make a, a technical point, not to their liking, but but look, we, we've gotten dumb. I mean, you know, we, we've come to a period where. You know, it, it's credible for major news to talk about Jeff Sessions as a potential Russian agent. Now, if you think about that in any kind of historical context. Well, it wasn't even they, cuckoo it, it off, it, it, and If you think cuckoo. back, it went further than that sometimes. It wasn't that he was a potential Russian agent. It was that his supposed, quote, contact with the Russian ambassador for two minutes at a Republican convention Show that he was in part of a collusion plot. Like that was the proof. <laughs> exactly. And and they looked at some pictures and greeted some greeted the ambassador at some point. But I mean, it's all it, it's cuckoo town. But it was credible, right? I mean, if you didn't buy into it, you were going to get uh, canceled. You know, uh, like the new uh, like uh, Alinsky's aide for. Zelensky's age for actually telling the story. <laughs> he got canceled the next day. Uh, hopefully he won't get shot. But anyway, I, I mean, we believe this this crazy stuff. The whole Russia Gate was an example of it. I mean, you know, we, we have a government that comes out and announces with a straight face. You know, it's key representatives. Well, the Russians blew up their pipeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Marco Rubio was on CNN like, a couple days after I mean, the Nord Stream pipeline incident, and was just saying, "Look, we basically know who did this." Wink, wink. I mean, and you know, he all but just outright accused Russia of being behind the Nord Stream pipeline. And is anybody going to go back now? Now that it's like extremely ambiguous, who, at the very least, who did the attack? And if anything. It's almost been uh, rejected, even in the Washington Post, that right. Russia is the most likely culprit. I mean, nobody goes back and asks Marco Rubio, hey, what about what you said in September here, Senator? I mean, it's uh, that's just going to, you know, memory hold to use a uh, what is admittedly a cliche from Orwell, right. but a useful one. But, yeah, I mean, it's, those are just, I mean, there are innumerable examples of this, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and that's what would, would give you pause. And and the problem is, I, I don't know what you, whatever people's positions are, you would hope that there would at least be a reasonable discussion about what an escalation is. I mean, the, what what they're giving them permission to do in that, I think it was a New York Times article, yeah, that reported on uh, going after Crimea. Yes, yes, New it was New York Times. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, look... <laughs> They're not going to be able to take Korea. There isn't a military person anywhere, you know, whether it's the Austrian ones, the German ones, or whatever. None of them are saying that unless they're a mouthpiece for the administration right now. Okay. Or well, in the article, actually, crazy. in the article okay. itself, but, but it does here, say, but, I mean, it throws in sort of a strange aside where it says, you know, administration officials don't necessarily think that Ukraine would be able to militarily take Crimea, but they want to give the impression that they're determined to. They, like, maybe they want to do like incursions or something. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like contradictory how it's framed. So who knows actually what the thinking well, is? The, the actual policy 
adjustment there is the U.S. say, well, go ahead, do these terror attacks. That's what they're talking about. But, but that's obviously because I think you're absolutely right. Everybody knows, well, they're not going to be marching into Korea, uh, Crimea in the next uh, few months. I mean, nobody says that they were capable of doing that. Uh, but what have they been given permission to do? Well, maybe use some of that longer range stuff, you know, and blow up some things, you know. Uh, uh, and, and those kind of, prov- and I think they are looking for provo- you know, kind of pro- provocations, you know, uh, to go after and then call those successes because they're likely not going to get those on the ground in the short term. But I mean, the cynicism, I think, in my personal opinion, is a very cynical approach. I think, uh, 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 you know, Biden's got his, uh, his foot in the tar pit here and there's no way out without somebody uh, blinking substantially. OK, there, there, there isn't a real clean way out. Uh, no. Mean, best thing for the U.S. is for us is if uh, he takes a, a big chunk of territory beyond where he wants and then negotiates back to the line. With well, it's not even that there's no clean way out, right? It's that nobody it, – it's becoming He's less and less tenable for anybody even to try to contemplate what the way out would be, right? I mean if you listen to what, what you know, the rhetoric was at this Davos thing, I didn't hear all of it, but what I did hear – you know, it's just a doubling down on the doubling down on the doubling down in terms of right. proclaiming that only, you know, it's it's more important than ever that total military victory is achieved. There's like no budging. I mean, I think a part of that has to do with, you know, you, you can even be connected to the media well, sort of component where like there's no allowance or very minor allowance. Look, and still for any dissension or debate, whatever dissension or debate does happen is considered like, you know, um, malevolently right-wing or fascistic. And so you know, if that's still like the um, all-consuming sort of consensus that they're operating in, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that they're still of the mind that, you know, all anyone has to think about on the topic okay. is how to achieve total military victory. Like there's no nothing impinging on their sort of presuppositions about even the wisdom of that objective. Right. And, and that's that's that uh, uh, press weakness. I mean, it's shocking in that, in that sense. I mean, you, you, look, you've you got a whole uh, story there of uh, you know, it always strikes me as ironic when they're looking at this uh, Wagner group, you know, that's a kind of a yeah. military. What, what is it like? Black Rock or uh, Black, you know, what I'm talking about Blackwater. Right? Yeah, um... Blackwater. Yeah. So, something like that. I mean, I mean it seems we're, like it might we're, be a bit of a bigger force in Russia, although, you know, it's a bit foggy to me as to like what its actual position is. I, I just know, you know, basically what you know, based on what I've read. Well, if we take them at what, uh, you know, the, the allies, if, if we're allies, call them their mercenary, you know, bad actors, uh, which I would argue Ukraine is right now. I mean, Ukraine are the Gurkhas of the U.S. Empire at the moment. <laughs> well, well, don't tweet that. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, Phil. Uh, Going to move on here. Always good to talk to you. All right. Bye. Take care. Uh, Sterling, you're up. Hi, Michael. Um, first time caller. Hey. Oh, hey. Yeah, and big time fan. And I saw you on. Apologies if you were uh, expecting a. Uh, Richard to chime in, but I try to channel him if you'd like. Yeah, no, I just was um, intrigued by the topic. And um, 
I think for me, it just says, you know, I really believe that video killed the radio star in a lot of ways. And I think it's really evident now. I'm sort of a product of the 70s and 80s. Were you um, watching the launch of MTV when they played that as their first uh, song? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was 15, no, 14 years old. And my grandfather was absolutely intrigued by CNN. And I just grew up watching it with him. And I think it killed journalism in the long run. I think when it became a, you know, you're on screen and a real ego presenting yourself. And um, then you, if you're presenting yourself, you need to have the, you know, the um, lengthy resume. And I think it ruined it. And I think it's sad. I really like the idea, like Matt Taibbi's talked about, um, of the old school journalism and those ragtag um journalists and that even show in movies you know they're like totally gruff they're smoking cigarettes and they're running to phone booths to tell a story yeah you know just to interject really quickly uh, uh interesting anecdote i was listening to uh, peter hitchens the uh you know english journalist uh, yes talk I about, watching yeah. him about okay us. yeah 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 he i don't know if you saw this particular stream it was on uh, novara media um which is more of a left-oriented uh stream in in London, um, you know, Hitchens is more conservative, but like exactly. leftists tend to like him or at least yeah, find I him do. interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, me too. <laughs> and um, he made an interesting point because there's a ton of industrial action happening right now in the UK where I happen to be at the moment. And, you know, it's like society is almost at a standstill. You know, the ambulance drivers, oh. railway drivers, um, teachers – Nurses, uh, doctors are threatening to go to go on strike. Good. I'm missing a couple, I'm sure, but yeah, you know, it's, but it's, you know, it's a big deal. And he made the point that you know part of the reason why there's not a whole lot, like the coverage of it, is so inadequate now or um, unsatisfactory. Anyway, is that back when he was an industrial correspondent in like you know I think I guess the early '80s, he was an anomaly in that he actually did have a college degree. And he was on the industrial, uh, you know, labor, uh, you know, labor relations type beat. Uh, but most of the colleagues, including like the, you know, the old bulls and stuff in the I industry, uh, um, like, you know, the, for the daily uh, tabloids and broadsheets and stuff, were, um, you know, had no formal education past, you know, a certain relatively young age. And probably themselves were in the unions that they're then covering and they take on the journalism job later, like a bit later in life, as a, a trade, not as this like um, identity, like elite identity signifier, which kind of is what it means now in popular media, both in the U.S. and the U.K. Although there are some differences in the respective cultures of the two countries, which but, means nobody's yeah. actually working the beat. You know, they're just. You know what I mean? They're just yeah. Well, there are some, but there tend to be like I don't know more stuff. activist types, which you know, the activists can produce good information, yes. but like you want the activist tendency to be like counterbalanced at times by like the journalistic or reportorial tendency. Like ideally, you want like a happy medium between the two, and without the newspaper reporter filling that role, it kind of has to be done ad hoc, and then you know, that can have mixed results. Yeah. And I, and I think they've been, I, I definitely, did you watch the monk debate obviously with Matt and um, against Malcolm Gladwell? Um, the one uh, in November. It was Douglas Murray. Matt. Tegan. Yeah. God, oh, you long? know, I, I went to go, I went to watch it. I was, it's funny that same week that that debate happened. I was on the monk debate podcast. Really? So I had like a mini, I was like a, uh, 
I was like an afterthought monk debater that week when the, the uh, big debate was happening with Tybee on it. But yeah, I was, well, on, was I did do a monk debate and it was it was actual debate. Really? Like it was like formally, uh, you know, moderated and stuff. And, you know, what was the, the debate? timer. Um, it was uh, it was uh, well, you can look it up. I mean, Google it. I think I, I tweeted at the time. Yeah, it was um, be it resolved. Uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter is the death knell for democracy, something like that. And I was arguing no, not because I'm a huge you know, fanboy of Elon Musk, but for, you know, I know reasons, I feel like we always have to say yeah. that on the left. We have just to say we don't, we're not against, you know, I, what you just said, I feel like I have to say immediately. As well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. Always hedging and... Uh, yes, it's so weird with him, but it's like, look, you know, if you've been following what's going on and been um, on this end of media since 2016... You've seen it nosedive, and it's been horrifying to watch it. And, you know, part of me, when, when I saw this, it's like, and I hear people trying to defend it, and I'm like, well, you know, it's almost like an abusive relationship. How many times are you going to be abused by somebody before you say, I'm done? And I had to say, I'm done a long time ago with the New York Times and um, just forget CNN and MSNBC. I just can't even, I just can't do it. Well, you know, for my purposes, it's not, it wouldn't be responsible for me to say i'm done with the new york times right i have to i grew up consume the new york times because i remember whatever critic critiques you might have of it and i have quite a few mm-hmm. it's going to be where a lot of key information is housed and disseminated and i i wouldn't be doing a service to myself or my you know readers or listeners or everything if i just said no, you're right if you i just like absolutely said oh i'm just not i'm gonna work in the new york times it's like you know uh, digging your head in the sand that's your job, exactly. But I mean, for me, as somebody that it isn't my job, I think I got so hurt by it because I was raised by it. Totally, like, you know, my mother did the crossroads. We grew up every week, my mother working on the New York Times crossroad puzzle every Sunday until she started doing them herself, like making them. And so and it was just part of that New York elite that my, and then my stepmother worked for Simon & Schuster for 18 years. My dad was in advertising. It was all about the New York Times. So to see them keep doing this and keep lying um, when it concerns things like war and elections, because look, we know the deal. Nobody's going to give money to a losing war. No way. So they have to lie about it over and over and over again, regardless of who's getting killed. Um, and the same thing, nobody's going to vote for a losing candidate. And I remember in September when the Wall Street Journal came out and said Biden leads by eight points. And I said, that's it. He's won because the New- it was the Wall Street Journal who said it. And I said, that's it. Because everybody with money is going to, obviously, if, if they're conservative, they're going to want to vote for Trump, uh, for Biden over Trump. Because Trump, for the market, in my opinion, was way too volatile. And I think more of a problem than Wall Street wanted to be dealing with. Granted, he gave them, you know, he did a bunch of favors there. But they're going to go where the bigger favors are. And basically, I think they realized Biden was going to be completely helpful to them. So I think the media is so powerful. And I think as a consumer, sometimes you do have to just say, you know what? I'm done. And it really hurts because all my memories of my, you know, up until my mid thirties are of you, but I'm not doing this anymore, but your job, absolutely. In order to discern, I remember in 2016, I had to watch Fox and CNN to get the truth of what was happening. And I'm like, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm watching Fox news. And another irony is when you talk about how the, how powerful the media is, well, the New York times in particular now is probably more powerful than it's ever been, which is not what many would have predicted given how the internet was supposed to like diffuse the media landscape, which it has, but in diffusing the media landscape, it left like a few outlets that were able to consolidate power. Most, you know, most um, 
significantly the New York Times, such that in a counterintuitive way, it actually bolstered their power. And well, yeah. I mean, the New York Times, I mean, they can, they can dictate the news cycle with the, at the drop of a hat. And, because you know, they have for, also for like, for, for like the world, even at times, and not even just the U.S. But they also, and exactly, and for this reason, because of the rise of Trump, they have elitists glomming on so tightly, they will never let go of the New York Times because it's part of their identity. And I have a neighbor who I adore. He's in, like, he's 80 year old Irish Democrat his whole life. And we get in discussions all the time, and it's like his whole thing. It's like he just can't believe I don't read the New York Times anymore. And it's just – and I get it. I totally get it. But I, that absolutely strengthens them. And so what they do is they feed on it. And this is why I talk about woke culture also. I think it's been so exploited by the left and now the right is making money off it. And the only people in the middle are losing are the ones that are being exploited. <laughs> and it's just so sick. But um, And mostly the children I think are losing. But uh, everybody's – profiting off the woke movement, the right for sure, and certainly the left. And it's just, the Americans are going, what in the hell is happening here? Can somebody just be an adult in the room? And yeah, so it's just been a wild time. But I agree. I think they decided in the monk debate, um, which was really good. And I was like, just listening, like screaming, like things out, like, tell them this, say this, say this, because um, is it, it public? Fun. Is it freely available? I mean, because I, 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 I went is. to go find it, and I thought like, it looked like you had to pay to become a monk. Uh-huh. I watch it, it for free on YouTube. The whole uh, thing. Okay. And okay. I'll, it was I'll, Malcolm I'll Gladwell. Who yeah, yeah, yeah. Up, yeah, and Douglas Murphy is so. Um, and didn't Tybee say? So I think I think Tybee said that his side won by like a larger margin than oh, any other debate ever. in monk history. Is that right? Ever. And when they yeah. kind of pulled the audience in the beginning, it was uh, be it resolved. Mainstream media is a source for good, source for good in the world, or something very similar to that, and which to me was laughable from the beginning. And but they really tried to argue it on the right, and I almost felt terrible for the woman um, from the New York Times. I'm sorry, I cannot remember her name, but because by the end of it, she just looked at uh, Michelle Goldberg. Like she knew. Yes, Goldberg. I remember the last name. Um, and um, Malcolm Gladwell was such an asshole. I couldn't get over it. And at one point, Douglas Murray calls him Malk. Just like that, just so sarcastically. I mean, it got crazy. You'll enjoy it. Um, but they pulled the audience, and the audience was like, um, yeah, they were less – they were more agreeable that, that, yes, it was a source for good ultimately. It might suck, but ultimately it was good. By the time they were done, um, like 64% of the audience was like, they're totally not a source for good. Yeah, and again, it was, like it was the like biggest the biggest shift of any monk debate yes. ever in the audience. Yeah, and that – so definitely watch it because it really – talks about this whole thing and um but thank you for reading the new york times for all of us and being able to discern i might get over it one day but yeah, I yeah google, uh, too google much. my name monk debate uh podcast and it should come up if you're oh yeah here, definitely so. no that didn't get as that much sounds- uh, not nearly as much of a uh, high profile <laughs> as the actual monk debate but i was sort of uh you know, I was uh, happy to do it. I was Absolutely. Know, pre- I pleasantly surprised so to receive the uh, invite, and it was a real debate. Absolutely. So That's a huge honor, and it leads to other honors. Like, maybe that will change, you know? So, well, um, no, I don't think it's going to lead to other honors. I'm, I, it might lead to other dishonors for me, but we'll see. Oh, please. Please. <laughs> anyway, right, well, this has been great. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Sterling. Good to talk Good to you. Good night. All right, and uh, we have Matthew, who I uh, haven't spoken to in a while. Oh, he dropped out. Matthew, if you're there, oh, there you, there you're back. Good. I was just saying that uh, <laughs> I haven't heard from you in a while. Yeah. So. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm call- 
I'm actually calling in from India this morning. Really? Britain, I'm in India, yeah. I'm doing what are you doing some, in India? Uh, I'm doing uh, some research for my my doctoral thesis is actually on the life of uh, refugees from Nazism to South Asia and hmm. the Arab world. So I'm in Calcutta reading some documents about that. So it's yeah, it's pretty interesting. So, what language are the documents in? Oh, they're all in English. I don't know any South Asian languages. I know Arabic, okay. but I don't know any South Asian languages. They are all in English because it's it's from British in right. British India era. So yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it does feel rather odd, though, uh, to come to a country that I know. Well, I, I'm generally ignorant of the culture, fascinated by it, but pretty ignorant. And I'm able to do research because it's it's all in the language of the Well, yeah, I was, was, was going to see if you had learned uh, Sanskrit or something and tell you how No, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although it's a fascinating country. Um, I think my impressions are pretty are pretty crass because I just don't have... But I guess that kind of... The, Speaking of well, I'm learning the Scots language to uh, just to blend oh. in here. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So I guess the, the, the mention, we mentioned expertise. That kind of relates to a question I have, which is actually an issue I'm not quite sure about because, and it relates, I think, to this media debate. Is the media a, a, a public good, the mainstream media, and so on? That may be a little too general way to phrase it. But I think there's a paradox here because on the one side, I definitely am in the camp that the resources, experience, and expertise that these media institutions have are of great value. Like, to mention, like, the stuff thing Richard mentions, that's how Vice, in his article, that's how Vice has the capacity to report on these bank heists in Lebanon and popular support for them. Really fascinating yeah, story. Yeah, um, just to interject really quickly, but by yeah. coincidence, one of the Vice documentaries that Richard mentioned in his piece, uh, my girlfriend, who was the first caller on this show, actually, I don't know if you were here, but... Um, she uh, coincidentally, I don't know, I guess stumbled upon it like a week before Richard's piece came out. So we watched the, that, that Liberia documentary by uh, Vice from 2012. And, you know, say what you will about Vice and the whole, like, uh, aesthetic of it and the whole sort of um, sensibility behind it. But, I mean, they got they get some wild footage and they show stuff that you'd never see anywhere else. I mean, just like the just the, just the um, footage of the slums of Liberia are, you know – it's just wild to see because you're never going to be exposed to it or without seeking it out anyway. And it was really good, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. And and, and that's kind of where I am. So on the one hand, and there's, of course, another hand. On the one hand, I'm inclined to appreciate and even defer to the kind of uh, these institutions in the, to the extent that they have resources, expertise, experience, knowledge of the la- local languages and so on that can allow them to report from odd pockets of the world. But on the other hand, the other hand, is I think very important too. The premise of expertise can be used as an ideological filter, obviously. Like, you know, these days with, it's a cliche at this point, but I think there's truth to it. These days, if you want to become an expert in race relations in the United States, to really get accredited and such, you're going to have to adopt some left-wing ideological assumptions that that act as a sort of filtering mechanism, you know, that you're not going to get the Glenn Lowry take on uh, race relations in the United States uh, if you go through the, ins- the mainstream institutions and get a position writing about them for the New York Times. Although there, you, there, there, there is like the counter, um, there is like the uh, counterposing sort of route you can go through where if you have a more Glenn Lowry style take, given how dispersed and diffuse the media ecosystem is now, there's a decent chance that, you know, if you have something compelling to say, you know, there are opportunities where you can probably gain something of a platform 
So in other words, if you have a Glenn Larry style take, there's like an alternate ecosystem or like slightly, maybe like partially overlapping ecosystem that's available to you that maybe wouldn't have in the past, which might be a reason to somewhat um, appreciate the uh, advances made by the current nature of the oh, I, I agree media with that, environment, whatever its faults. Yeah, but if we talk about the mainstream media or mainstream institutions or a um, you know position, well, I mean, Glenn Lowry, mainstream institutions, I think, are kind of his belly right. right? Brown University. I mean, yeah, I read him in the New York Times. I mean, you know, uh, Manhattan Institute. I mean, those aren't like fringe. Okay, but but, but I think there's. It's not like okay. First of all, though, he got tenure before I think this moral panic had set in long before, and tenure is obviously an important consideration in this conversation but i think in general there definitely is expertise is substantive and real has great value and uh it also can act as an ideological filter like the, the kind of criterion of expertise to write about yeah you know uh i don't know whatever topic like russia russia in the new york times let's say uh, there's substance there like you're not just going to get some random person to write about you know, Russia and the New York Times, but there was going to be some kind of ideological filter. And and, and also, I think, I think... Um, Is expertise really the best way to think about that competency, though? Because, I don't know, I always have this instinctive aversion to deferring to, like, self-proclaimed experts or for people who are, like, explicitly appealing to their claimed expertise. Like, if you're an actual expert or you do have this extensive familiarity with a topic, shouldn't that be made evident by what you're saying in writing such that like, I don't have to be lectured to defer to you on the ground that you're an expert, but because of the merits of the substance of what you're saying. Yeah. I think there's a paradox. So first of all, I'm with you on like the visceral, like that's cringe. Bro, Wait, remember the name of this call in show that it's gathering of experts and scare quotes. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No, no. I, I think I forgot that for a second, actually. But I think it's an, I think it's a paradox because so first of all I'm with you on just the sheer cringe element of it like oh my god if you're not a physician do not call yourself doctor and much less on Twitter and even just referencing it yeah it, it is cringe and it also has like an there's a normative component to it it's not just about knowledge one has acquired it's basically saying defer to my moral interpretation moralistic interpretation of the world of culture and, and, and so on. But, but I don't know. I just, I think that, that there is a paradox here. I don't really have a strong opinion on it, but I just kind of am ambivalent because I think there is an element of expertise that the mainstream media offers, at least maybe not so much MSNBC, but certainly like the New York times, there's a certain level of expertise they offer that substantive and is worthy of respect. And then on the other hand, there's all these misuses of it. And then there also are fields where I, I question whether someone can actually be an expert. Um, like online safety or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Online violence. Um, yeah. Uh, is that the, do you have like a, uh, is that leading up to like a final argument or thought or like a just, thesis or uh, something? Or? No, I don't have a strong opinion. I just kind of noticed that I feel very much drawn in different directions on this question. Like, um, and I'm wondering if you appreciate the paradox. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel I'm sort of with you in having like multiple competing instincts 
on it because it's like a nebulous topic, right? I mean, what are we even really talking about when we're talking about the media? It's not like there's like a tan- like a hard, tangible, concrete proposition before us that we can like analyze with like a high degree of precision because we're talking in just general terms about just a uh, overriding phenomenon. But one thing that I am kind of fairly certain of is not a rejection of expertise per se, but definitely a high degree of skepticism of like the expertise industry or like the um, self credentialing industries or the institutionally conferring expertise industries. Um, not that everybody in those industries and industries like, yeah, is sort of like a demeaning way of put it, uh, putting it, you know, deliberately, not everyone within those indus- industries is uh, discreditable, uh, but the flaunting of their expertise, I think, is discreditable, especially when it's used to hector people, and not just on COVID stuff. I mean, that's where people got most sort of uh, <laughs> alienated from experts, or at least a portion of people on the internet did. Um, but you know, in a variety of fields. I mean, in national security and foreign policy, it's just rampant how horrible and um, distorting it is. Like, I'm almost more inclined to distrust somebody who's a self-described expert or is like really fixated on promoting their credentials as somehow bolstering their takes on the latest foreign policy issue of the day, whether it's like war developments or whatever. Um, because it's just like there's an element of sleaze to it or like element of like self-dealing to it that ought to, I think, justifiably arouse within the recipient of that information a skepticism about like the authenticity or the trustworthiness of it. Like if you're an like if you're an expert, um, then just manifest that, exemplify that through the quality of what you're saying. Um, because and I do think there are lay people or like non-credential people who can become uh, experts on field on issues um, or become like hyper-competent in and correct in their analysis of a particular issue. And um, because they don't have the credential, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to view them as less trustworthy. And maybe in some cases that's even valid if it's like maybe a technical thing or a scientific thing. But, you know, especially if we're dealing with something as expansive and um, open to interpretation as like a foreign policy issue, um, the credential to me is almost meaningless. And if anything, it kind of indicates membership in this in these cliques and these professional societies such that like your in psychic investment is in something other potentially than actually producing an accurate rendering of like the phenomena that you're purporting to describe. So um, definitely in the field of foreign policy anyway, I do, I think it's uh, it does more harm than good to have these, coteries of experts trying to hold themselves out as the uh, people from whom we need to have wisdom imparted on us. Um, yeah, I don't know. So that's uh, not the a crisp uh, thesis statement for me either, but just some, some thoughts I have based on listening to what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think it's just an issue that critics of the media like yourself um, uh, should grapple with because like, like I'm with you. It's, it's cringe. And also it's kind of like, I kind of interpersonally, I'm like, wow, I really wouldn't want to hang out with that person. They're so pretentious. It's and and probably just reeks of insecurity as well. So I, I don't like it viscerally. And then there's some fields where I'm substantively skeptical of of, of whether there can be, in an abstract sense, expertise. 
<laughs> you know, um, well, words, like, you know there are like disinformation experts quoted constantly now, misinformation right, yeah, or, yeah. you know, um, and they all have they all all have the same exact views. Like somebody who like disagrees with the prevailing view of like what is misinformation, right, yeah. what is the scale of the supposed threat, what are the ideological like uh, dimensions of it. That type of person is not going to submit themselves to whatever credentialing process is necessary to become one of these officially designated misinformation experts. So it's I kind of so. like nonsensical. Yeah, I think in in some of these fields, it like has gone far past the point of caricature, where like all of it's ideological and like very little of it is substantive. But I think even in even among physicists, let's say, um, you know, which subject I don't know much about physics, but I imagine that there is this risk of consensus in all in all range of fields, uh, even fields where we. So I I, I I I don't have really coherent thoughts on this either, I suppose. But I think it's just it's a paradox. I think media critics have to keep in mind because I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. And I, and I am sympathetic um, emotionally, temperamentally to your reaction. But on the other hand, I think there is something we want to show great respect and even reverence for that can be reflected in a type of reporting, you know, even yeah. in these institutions. No, yeah. and I think, you know, anybody who's rational needs to have some degree of reverence or respect for people who are demonstrably competent and extremely knowledgeable about their subject area. Um, but that ought to be demonstrated through work, you know, through deed rather than through like exhortation. Um, so, yeah, I can give you plenty of examples of people who I've felt that way about, you know, and one I was just talking about recently cause I you know, was looking at something I did a number of years ago, but uh, Wayne Barrett is this, um, you know, he was this, you know, longtime journalist in New York city, um, at the village voice forever, just, you know, did a ton of, Reporting on all kinds of issues, he was he was kind of a uh, you know a liberal Democrat, but you know rough around the edges, and you know he would have some kind of countervailing views and stuff. And um, I remember you know going to him because I was doing some reporting. Uh, it was in 2016. It was on Al Sharpton, believe it or not, and his connections to Trump. Um, actually, I started doing Al, Al Sharpton stuff in 2014, and Wayne Barrett basically was the font of wisdom on Al Sharpton because he started covering him. Um, Pretty much decades before he was really a national figure, when he was sort of like rising through the ranks, um, you know, or uh, uh, Barrett knew where to go to like look at where Sharpton came up and his like uh, you know supposed preacher credentials, and he just he he just had the goods, right? So that was an expertise in a sense, and so I did have a reverence for for him. He's he he um, he, he died unfortunately on uh, in 2017, but. Um, yeah, just one example that pops to mind, which I th- where in which I think this kind of reverence that you're talking of it was to me 100 percent rationally justified, but it wasn't something that I arrived at because I had been beseeched to display reverence. It was because I used my own rational faculties to determine that the reverence was warranted. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I would just say in closing that the paradox thing ought to be kept in mind because. Yeah, there, there there are these these critiques which I'm basically sympathetic to, but um, I think there also are things that these institutions offer that other institutions don't. And I think I think Richard made a good point of that in the article. Like, what what's the alternative, you know, to learning about about the world if you're not if you don't like speak the, all these crazy languages than to you know <laughs> our media institutions essentially. All right, well, uh, good to hear from you, Matthew. Uh, enjoy uh, Calcutta. Take care.